Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 11 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11. The Corsican Ogre. At the sight of this agitation, Louis XVIII pushed from him violently the table at which he was sitting. "'What ails you, Baron?' he exclaimed. "'You appear quite aghast. Has your uneasiness anything to do with what Monsieur de Blacas has told me, and Monsieur de Villefort has just confirmed?' Monsieur de Blacas moved suddenly towards the Baron, but the fright of the courtier pleaded for the forbearance of the statesman, and besides, as matters were, it was much more to his advantage that the prefect of police should triumph over him than that he should humiliate the prefect. Sire, stammered the baron. Well, what is it? asked Louis Eighteenth. The minister of police, giving way to an impulse of despair, was about to throw himself at the feet of Louis Eighteenth, who retreated a step and frowned. Will you speak? he said. Oh, sire. What a dreadful misfortune! I am indeed to be pitied. I can never forgive myself. Monsieur, said Louis Eighteenth, I command you to speak. Oh, well, sire, the usurper left Elba on the 26th of February and landed on the 1st of March. And where? In Italy? asked the king eagerly. In France, sir, at a small port near Antibes in the Gulf of Juan. The usurper landed in France, near Antibes, in the Gulf of Juan, 250 leagues from Paris, on the 1st of March, and you only acquired this information today, the 4th of March? Well, sir, what you tell me is impossible. You must have received a false report, or you have gone mad. Alas, sire, it is but too true. Louis made a gesture of indescribable anger and alarm, and then drew himself up as if this sudden blow had struck him at the same moment in heart and countenance. "'In France!' he cried. "'The usurper in France? Then they did not watch over this man. Who knows, they were perhaps in league with him.' "'Oh, sire!' exclaimed the Duc de Blacroix. "'Monsieur Dondre is not a man to be accused of treason.' Sire, we have all been blind, and the Minister of Police has shared the general blindness, that is all. But, said Villefort, and then suddenly checking himself, he was silent. Then he continued, Your pardon, sire, 
he said, bowing. My zeal carried me away. Will your majesty deign to excuse me? Speak, sir, speak boldly, replied Louis. You alone forewarned us of the evil. Now try and aid us with the remedy. Sire, said Villefort, the usurper is detested in the south, and it seems to me that if he ventured into the south, it would be easy to raise a Languedoc and Provence against him. Yes, assuredly, replied the minister, but he is advancing by Gap and Cisteron. Advancing? He is advancing? said Louis Eighteenth. Is he then advancing on Paris? The minister of police maintained a silence which was equivalent to a complete avowal. And Dauphine, sir, inquired the king of Villefort, do you think it possible to rouse that as well as Provence? Sire, I am sorry to tell your majesty a cruel fact, but the feeling in Dauphine is quite the reverse of that in Provence or Languedoc. The mountaineers are Bonapartists, sire. Then, murmured Louis, he was well informed, and how many men had he with him? I do not know, sire, answered the minister of police. What? You do not know? Have you neglected to obtain information on that point? Of course it is of no consequence, he added with a withering smile. Sire, it was impossible to learn. Uh, the dispatch simply stated the fact of the landing and the route taken by the usurper. And how did this dispatch reach you? inquired the king. The minister bowed his head, and while a deep colour overspread his cheeks, he stammered out, By the telegraph, sire. Louis XVIII advanced a step and folded his arms over his chest, as Napoleon would have done. So then, he exclaimed, turning pale with anger, seven conjoined and allied armies overthrow that man. A miracle of heaven replaced me on the throne of my fathers after five and twenty years of exile. I have, during those five and twenty years, spared no pains to understand the people of France and the interests which were confided to me. And now, when I see the fruition of my wishes almost within reach, the power I hold in my hands bursts and shatters me to atoms. Sire, it is a fatality, murmured the minister, feeling that the pressure of circumstances, however light a thing to destiny, was too much for any human strength to endure. What our enemies say of us is then true. We have learnt nothing, forgotten nothing. If I were betrayed as he was, I would console myself, but to be in the midst of persons elevated by myself to places of honour, who ought to watch over me more carefully than of over themselves, for my fortune is theirs, before me they were nothing. After me, they will be nothing, and perish miserably from incapacity, ineptitude. Oh, yes, sir, you are right. It is fatality. The minister quailed before this outburst of sarcasm. Monsieur de Blacca wiped the moisture from his brow. Villefort smiled within himself, for he felt his increased importance. To fall, continued King Louis, who at the first glance had sounded the abyss on which the monarchy hung suspended. To fall 
and learn of that fall by my telegraph? Oh, I would rather mount the scaffold of my brother, Louis XVI, than thus descend the staircase at the Tuileries, driven away by ridicule. Ridicule, sir! Why, you know not its power in France, and yet you ought to know it. Sire, sire, murmured the minister, for pity's approach, Monsieur de Villefort, resumed the king, addressing the young man, who, motionless and breathless, was listening to a conversation on which depended the destiny of a kingdom. Approach, and tell Monsieur that it is possible to know beforehand all that he has not known. Sire, it was really impossible to learn secrets which that man concealed from all the world. Really impossible? Yes, that is a great word, sir. Unfortunately, there are great words, as there are great men. I have measured them. Really impossible for a minister who has an office, agents, spies, and 1,500,000 francs for secret service money to know what is going on at 60 leagues from the coast of France? Well then, see, here is a gentleman who had none of these resources at his disposal. A gentleman, only a simple magistrate, who learned more than you with all your police, and who would have saved my crown if, like you, he had the power of directing a telegraph. The look of the Minister of Police was turned with concentrated spite on Villefort, who bent his head in modest triumph. I do not mean that for you, Blacca, continued Louis XVIII, for if you have discovered nothing, at least you have had the good sense to persevere in your suspicions. Any other than yourself would have considered the disclosure of Monsieur de Villefort insignificant, or else dictated by venal ambition. These words were an allusion to the sentiments which the Minister of Police had uttered with so much confidence an hour before. Villefort understood the King's intent. Any other person would perhaps have been overcome by such an intoxicating draught of praise, but he feared to make for himself a mortal enemy of the police minister, although he saw that Dondre was irrevocably lost. In fact, the minister, who in the plenitude of his power had been unable to unearth Napoleon's secret, might in despair at his own downfall interrogate Dante, and so lay bare the motives of Villefort's plot. Realising this, Villefort came to the rescue of the crestfallen minister, instead of aiding to crush him. Sire, said Villefort, the suddenness of this event must prove to your majesty that the issue is in the hands of providence. What your majesty is pleased to attribute to me as profound perspicacity is simply owing to chance, and I have profited by that chance like a good and devoted servant. That's all. Do not attribute to me more than I deserve, sire, that your majesty may never have occasion to recall the first opinion you are pleased to form of me. The Minister of Police thanked the young man by an eloquent look, and Villefort understood that he had succeeded in his design. That is to say that without forfeiting the gratitude of the king, he had made a friend of one on whom, in case of necessity, he might rely. It is well, resumed the king, and now, gentlemen, he continued, turning towards Monsieur de Blacas and the Minister of Police, I have no further occasion for you, 
Mandiou may retire. What now remains to do is in the department of the Minister of War. Fortunately, sire, said Monsieur de Blacas, we can rely on the army. Your Majesty knows how every report confirms their loyalty and attachment. Do not mention reports, Duke, to me, for I know now what confidence to place in them. Yet, speaking of reports, Baron, what have you learned with regard to the affair in the Rue Saint-Jacques? The affair in the Rue Saint-Jacques, exclaimed Villefort, unable to repress an exclamation. Then, suddenly pausing, he added, Your pardon, sire, but my devotion to your majesty has made me forget not the respect I have, for that is too deeply engraved in my heart, but the rules of etiquette. Go on, go on, sir, replied the king. You have today earned the right to make inquiries here. Sire, interposed the minister of police, I came a moment ago to give your majesty fresh information, which I had obtained on his head. When your majesty's attention was attracted by the terrible event that has occurred in the gulf, and now these facts will cease to interest your majesty. On the contrary, sir, on the contrary, said Louis Eighteenth, this affair seems to me to have a decided connection with that which occupies our attention, and the death of General Kennel will perhaps put us on the direct track of a great internal conspiracy. At the name of General Quenel, Villefort trembled. Everything points to the conclusion, sire, said the Minister of Police, that death was not the result of a suicide, as we first believed, but of assassination. General Quenel, it appears, had just left a Bonapartist club when he disappeared. An unknown person had been with him that morning and made an appointment with him in the Rue Saint-Jacques. Unfortunately, the general's valet, who was dressing his hair at the moment when the stranger entered, heard the street mentioned, but did not catch the number. As the police minister related this to the king, Villefort, who looked as if his very life hung on the speaker's lips, turned alternately red and pale. The king looked towards him. Do you not think with me, Monsieur de Villefort, that General Canel, whom they believe attached to the usurper, but who was really entirely devoted to me, has perished the victim of a Bonapartist ambush? It is probable, sire, replied Villefort. But is this all that is known? They are on the track of the man who appointed the meeting with him. On his track? said Villefort. Yes, the servant has given his description. He is a man of from fifty to fifty-two years of age, dark, with black eyes covered with shaggy eyebrows, and a thick moustache. He was dressed in a blue frock coat, buttoned up to the chin, and wore at his buttonhole the rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honour. Yesterday, a person exactly corresponding with this description was followed but he was lost sight of at the corner of the Rue de la Jussienne and the Rue Coq-Héron. Villefort leaned on the back of an armchair, for as the Minister of Police went on speaking, he felt his legs bend under him, 
But when he learned that the unknown had escaped the vigilance of the agent who followed him, he breathed again. Continue to seek for this man, sir, said the king to the minister of police. For if as I am all but convinced, General Connell, who would have been so useful to us at this moment, has been murdered. His assassins, Bonapartists or not, shall be cruelly punished. It required all Villefort's coolness not to betray the terror with which this declaration of the king inspired him. How strange, continued the king with some asperity. The police think that they have disposed of the whole matter when they say a murder has been committed, and especially so when they can add, and we are on the track of the guilty persons. Sire, your majesty will, I trust, be amply satisfied on this point at least. We shall see. I will no longer detain you, Monsieur de Villefort, for you must be fatigued after so long a journey. Go and rest. Of course, you can stop at your father's. A feeling of faintness came over Villefort. No, sire, he replied. I alighted at the Hotel de Madrid in the Rue de Tournon. But you have seen him? Sire, I went straight to the Duc de Blacas. But you will see him then? I think not, sire. Ah, I forgot, said Louis, smiling in a manner which proved that all these questions were not made without a motive. I forgot you and Monsieur Noirtier are not on the best terms possible, and that is another sacrifice made to the royal cause, and for which you should be recompensed. Sire, the kindness of your majesty deigns to evince towards me is a recompense which so far surpasses my uttermost ambition that I have nothing more to ask for. Never mind, sir. We will not forget you. Make your mind easy. In the meanwhile, the king here detached the cross of the Legion of Honour, which he usually wore over his blue coat near the cross of Saint-Louis, above the order of Notre-Dame du Mont-Carmel and Saint-Lazare, and gave it to Villefort. In the meanwhile, take this cross. Sire, said Villefort, your majesty mistakes. This is an officer's cross. Ma foi, said Louis Eighteenth, take it, such as it is, for I have not the time to procure you another. Blacca, let it be your care to see that the brevet is made out and sent to Monsieur de Villefort. Villefort's eyes were filled with tears of joy and pride. He took the cross and kissed it. And now, he said, may I inquire what are your orders with which your majesty deigns to honor me? Take what rest you require, and remember that if you are not able to serve me here in Paris, you may be of the greatest service to me at Marseille. Sire, replied Villefort, bowing, in an hour I shall have quitted Paris. Go, sir, said the king, and should I forget you? King's memories are short. Do not be afraid to bring yourself to my recollection. Baron, send for the Minister of War. Blacca, remain. Ah, oh, sir, said the Minister of Police to Villefort, as they left the Tuileries. You entered by Luck's door. Your fortune is made. Will it be long first? muttered Villefort. 
saluting the minister whose career was ended and looking about him for a hackney coach. One passed at the moment which he hailed. He gave his address to the driver and, springing in, threw himself on the seat and gave loose to dreams of ambition. Ten minutes afterwards, Villefort reached his hotel, ordered horses to be ready in two hours, and asked to have his breakfast brought to him. He was about to begin his repast when the sound of the bell rang sharp and loud. The valet opened the door, and Villefort heard someone speak his name. "'Who could know that I was here already?' said the young man. The valet entered. "'Well,' said Villefort, "'what is it? Who rang? Who asked for me?' "'A stranger.' You will not send his name. A stranger who will not send in his name. What can he want with me? He wishes to speak to you. To me? Yes. Did he mention my name? Yes. What sort of person is he? Why, sir, a man of about fifty. Short or tall? About your own height, sir. Dark or fair? Dark. Very dark, with black eyes, black hair, black eyebrows. And how dressed? asked Villefort quickly. In a blue frock coat, buttoned up close, decorated with a legion of honour. It is he, said Villefort, turning pale. Et par Dieu, said the individual whose description we have twice given, entering the door. What a great deal of ceremony! Is it the custom in Marseilles for sons to keep their fathers waiting in their ante-rooms? Father, cried Villefort, then I was not deceived. I felt sure it must be you. Well then, if you felt so sure, replied the newcomer, putting his cane in a corner and his hat on a chair, allow me to say, my dear Gérard, that it was not very filial of you to keep me waiting at the door. Leave us, Germain, said Villefort. The servant quitted the apartment with evident signs of astonishment. End of chapter 11「Chapter 12 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. Father and Son Monsieur Noirtier, for it was indeed he who entered, looked after the servant until the door was closed, and then, fearing, no doubt, that he might be overheard in the antechamber, he opened the door again, nor was the precaution useless, as appeared from the rapid retreat of Germain who proved that he was not exempt from the sin which ruined our first parents. Monsieur Noirtier then took the trouble to close and bolt the antechamber door, then that of the bedchamber, and then extended his hand to Villefort, who had followed all his motions with surprise which he could not conceal. "'Well, now, my dear Gérard,' said he to the young man with a very significant look, do you know you seem as if you were not very glad to see me my dear father said villefort i am on the contrary delighted but i so little expected your visit 
that it has somewhat overcome me. But, my dear fellow, replied Monsieur Noirtier, seating himself, I might say the same thing to you. When you announce to me your wedding for the 28th of February, and on the 3rd of March you turn up here in Paris. And if I have come, my dear father, said Gérard, drawing closer to Monsieur Noirtier, do not complain, for it is for you that I came, and my journey will be your salvation. Ah, indeed, said Monsieur Noirtier, stretching himself out at his ease in the chair. Really, pray tell me all about it, for it must be interesting. Father, you have heard speak of a certain Bonapartist club in the Rue Saint-Jacques. Number 53. Yes, I am vice-president. Father, your coolness makes me shudder. Why, my dear boy, when a man has been proscribed by the mountaineers, has escaped from Paris in a ecart, been hunted over the plains of Bordeaux by Robespierre's bloodhounds, he becomes accustomed to most things. But go on, what about the club in Rue Saint-Jacques? Why, they induced General Canel to go there, and General Canel, who quitted his own house at nine o'clock in the evening, was found the next day in the Seine. And who told you this fine story? The king himself. Well then, in return for your story, continued Noirtier, I will tell you another. My dear father, I think I already know what you are about to tell me. Ah, you have heard of the landing of the emperor. Not so loud, father, I entreat you, for your own sake as well as mine. Yes, I heard this news, and knew it even before you could. For three days ago I posted from Marseille to Paris with all possible speed, half desperate at the enforced delay. Three days ago? You are crazy. Why, three days ago the Emperor had not landed. No matter, I was aware of his intention. How did you know about it? By a letter addressed to you from the island of Elba. To me? To you, and which I discovered in the pocket-book of the messenger. Had that letter fallen into the hands of another, you, my dear father, would probably ere this have been shot. Villefort's father laughed. Ha, <laughs> ha, come, come, said he. Will the restoration adopt imperial methods so promptly? Shot, my dear boy? What an idea! Where is the letter you speak of? I know you too well to suppose you would allow such a thing to pass you. I burnt it, for fear that even a fragment should remain, for that letter must have led to your condemnation. And the destruction of your future prospects, replied Noirtier. Yes, I can easily comprehend that. But I have nothing to fear while I have you to protect me. I do better than that, sir. I save you. You do? Why, really? The thing becomes more and more dramatic. Explain yourself. I must refer again to the club in the Rue Saint-Jacques. 
It appears that this club is rather a bore to the police. Why didn't they search more vigilantly? They would have found. They have not found. But they are on the track. Yes, that's the usual phrase. I am quite familiar with it. When the police is at fault, it declares that it is on the track, and the government patiently awaits the day when it comes to say, with a sneaking air, that the track is lost. Yes, but they have found a corpse. The general has been killed, and in all countries they call that a murder. A murder, do you call it? Why? There is nothing to prove that the general was murdered. People are found every day in the Seine, having thrown themselves in or having been drowned from not knowing how to swim. Father, you knew very well that the general was not a man to drown himself in despair, and people do not bathe in the Seine in the month of January. No, no, do not be deceived. This was murder in every sense of the word. And who thus designated it? The king himself. The king! I thought he was philosopher enough to allow that there was no murder in politics. In politics, my dear fellow, you know as well as I do, there are no men but ideas, no feelings but interests. In politics we do not kill a man, we only remove an obstacle, that is all. Would you like to know how matters have progressed? Well, I will tell you. It was thought reliance might be placed in General Quenel. He was recommended to us from the island of Elba. One of us went to him and invited him to the Rue Saint-Jacques, where he would find some friends. He came there, and the plan was unfolded to him for leaving Elba, the projected landing, etc. When he had heard and comprehended all to the fullest extent, he replied that he was a royalist. Then all looked at each other. He was made to take an oath, and did so, but with such an ill grace that it was really tempting providence to swear him and yet, in spite of that, the general was allowed to depart free, perfectly free. Yet he did not return home. What could that mean? Why, my dear fellow, that on leaving us he lost his way, that's all? A murder. Really, Villefort, you surprise me. You, a deputy procureur, to found an accusation on such bad premises. Did I ever say to you, when you were fulfilling your character as a royalist and cut off the head of one of my party, my son, you have committed a murder? No, I said. Very well, sir, you have gained the victory. Tomorrow, perchance, it will be our turn. But, father, take care. When our turn comes, our revenge will be sweeping. I do not understand you. You rely on the usurper's return. We do. 
You are mistaken. He will not advance two leagues into the interior of France without being followed, tracked, and caught like a wild beast. My dear fellow, the Emperor is at this moment on the way to Grenoble. On the 10th or 12th, he will be at Lyon, and on the 20th or 25th, at Paris. The people will rise. Yes, to go and meet him. He has but a handful of men with him, and armies will be dispatched against him. Yes, to escort him into the capital. Really, my dear Gérard, you are but a child. You think yourself well informed because the telegraph has told you. Three days after the landing, the usurper has landed at Cannes with several men. He is pursued. But where is he? What is he doing? You do not know at all. And in this way they would chase him to Paris without drawing a trigger. Grenoble and Lyon are faithful cities and will oppose him to an impassable barrier. Grenoble will open her gates to him with enthusiasm. All Lyon will hasten to welcome him. Believe me, we are as well informed as you, and our police are as good as your own. Would you like a proof of it? Well, you wish to conceal your journey from me, and yet I knew of your arrival half an hour after you had passed the barrier. You gave your direction to no one but your postillion. Yet I have your address, and in proof I am here, the very instant you are going to sit at table. Ring, then, if you please, for a second knife, fork, and plate, and we will dine together. Indeed, replied Villefort, looking at his father with astonishment. You really do seem very well informed. Eh? The thing is simple enough. You who are in power of only the means that money produces. We who are in expectation have those with devotion prompts. Devotion? said Villefort with a sneer. Yes, devotion, for that is, I believe, the phrase for hopeful ambition. And Villefort's father extended his hand to the bell-rope to summon the servant whom his son had not called. Villefort caught his arm. "'Wait, my dear father,' said the young man. "'One word more.' "'Say on.' "'However stupid the royalist police may be, "'they do know one terrible thing.' "'And what is that?' "'The description of the man who, on the morning of the day "'when General Quenel disappeared, "'presented himself at his house.' Oh, the admirable police have found that out, have they? And what may be that description? Dark complexion, hair, eyebrows and whiskers, black, blue frock coat, buttoned up to the chin, rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honour in his buttonhole, a hat with wide brim, and a cane. Aha, that is it, said Noirtier. And why then have they not laid hands on him? Because yesterday or the day before, they lost sight of him at the corner of the Rue Coqueron. 
Didn't I say that your police were good for nothing? Yes, but they may catch him yet. True, said Noirtier, looking carelessly around him. True, if this person were not on his guard as he is, and he added with a smile, he will consequently make a few changes in his personal appearance. At these words he rose and put off his frock coat and cravat, went towards a table on which he lay his son's toilet articles, lathered his face, took a razor, and with a firm hand cut off the compromising whiskers. Villefort watched him with alarm, not devoid of admiration. His whiskers cut off, Noirtier gave another turn to his hair, took instead of his black cravat a coloured neckerchief which lay at the top of an open portmanteau, put on in lieu of his blue and high-buttoned frock-coat, a coat of Villefort's of dark brown, and cut away in front, tried on before the glass a narrow-brimmed hat of his son's, which appeared to fit him perfectly, and leaving his cane in the corner where he had deposited it, he took up a small bamboo switch, cut the air with it once or twice, and walked about with that easy swagger which has one of his principal characteristics. Well, he said, turning towards his wandering son, when his disguise was completed, well, do you think your police will recognize me now? No, father, stammered Villefort, at, at least I hope not. And now, my dear boy, continued Noirtier, I rely on your prudence to remove all the things which I leave in your care. Oh, rely on me, said Villefort. Yes, yes, and now I believe you are right, and that you have really saved my life. Be assured I will return the favour hereafter. Villefort shook his head. You are not convinced yet. I hope at least that you may be mistaken. Shall you see the king again? Perhaps. Would you pass in his eyes for a prophet? Prophets of evil are not in favour at the court, father. True, but some day they do them justice. And supposing a second restoration, you would then pass for a great man. Well, what should I say to the king? Say to him, Sire, you are deceived as to the feeling in France, as to the opinions of the towns and the prejudices of the army. He whom in Paris you call the Corsican ogre, who at Nevers is styled the usurper, is already saluted as Bonaparte at Lyon and Emperor at Grenoble. You think he is tracked, pursued, captured. He is advancing as rapidly as his own eagles. The soldiers you believe to be dying with hunger, worn out with fatigue, ready to desert, gather like atoms of snow about the rolling ball as it hastens onward. Sire, go. Leave France to its real master, to him who acquired it, not by purchase, but by right of conquest. Go, sire, not that you incur any risk, for your adversary is powerful enough to show you mercy. 
but because it would be humiliating for a grandson of Saint Louis to owe his life to the man of Arcola, Marengo, Austerlitz. Tell him this, Gérard, or rather tell him nothing. Keep your journey a secret. Do not boast of what you have come to Paris to do, or have done. Return with all speed. Enter Marseille at night and your house by the back door. And there remain, quiet, submissive, secret, and above all, inoffensive. For this time, I swear to you, we shall act like powerful men who know their enemies. Go, my son. Go, my dear Gérard, and by your obedience to my paternal orders, or if you prefer it, friendly counsels, we will keep you in your place. This will be, added Noirtier with a smile, one means by which you may a second time save me. If the political balance should some day take another turn and cast you aloft while hurling me down, adieu, my dear Gérard, and at your next journey, alight at my door. Noirtier left the room when he had finished, with the same calmness that had characterized him during the whole of this remarkable and trying conversation. Villefort, pale and agitated, ran to the window, put aside the curtain and saw him pass, cool and collected, by two or three ill-looking men at the corner of the street, who were there, perhaps, to arrest a man with black whiskers and a blue frock coat and hat with broad brim. Villefort stood watching, breathless, until his father had disappeared at the Rue Bussy. Then he turned to the various articles he had left behind him, put the black cravat and blue frock coat at the bottom of the portmanteau, threw the hat into a dark closet, broke the cane into small bits and flung it in the fire, put on his travelling cap, and calling his valet, checked with a look the thousand questions he was ready to ask paid his bill, sprang into his carriage, which was ready, learned at Lyon that Bonaparte had entered Grenoble, and in the midst of the tumult which prevailed along the road, at length reached Marseille, a prey to all the hopes and fears which enter into the heart of man with ambition and its first successes. End of chapter 12「Chapter 13. The Hundred Days. » Monsieur Noirtier was a true prophet, and things progressed rapidly, as he had predicted. Everyone knows the history of the famous return from Elba, a return which was unprecedented in the past, and will probably remain without a counterpart in the future. Louis XVIII made but a faint attempt to parry this unexpected blow. The monarchy had scarcely reconstructed, tottered on its precarious foundation, and at a sign from the emperor, the incongruous structure of ancient prejudices and new ideas fell to the ground. Villefort, therefore, gained nothing save the king's gratitude, which was rather likely to injure him at the present time, 
and the cross of the Legion of Honour, which she had the prudence not to wear, although Monsieur de Blacas had duly forwarded the brevet. Napoleon would, doubtless, have deprived Villefort of his office, had it not been for Noirtier, who was all-powerful at court, and thus the Girondin of 93 and the Senator of 1806 protected him, who so lately had been his protector. All Villefort's influence barely enabled him to stifle the secret Dante had so nearly divulged. The king's procureur alone was deprived of his office, being suspected of royalism. However, scarcely was the imperial power established, that is, scarcely had the emperor re-entered the Tuileries and begun to issue orders from the closet into which we have introduced our readers. He found on the table there Louis XVIII's half-filled snuff-box, Scarcely had this occurred when Marseille began, in spite of the authorities, to rekindle the flames of civil war, always smouldering in the south, and it required but little to excite the populace to acts of far greater violence than the shouts and insults with which they assailed the royalists whenever they ventured abroad. <clears throat> Owing to this change, the worthy shipowner became at that moment, we will not say all-powerful, because Morel was a prudent and rather timid man, so much so that many of the most zealous partisans of Bonaparte accused him of moderation, but sufficiently influential to make a demand in favour of Dante. Villefort retained his place, but his marriage was put off until a more favourable opportunity. If the emperor remained on the throne, Gérard required a different alliance to aid his career. If Louis XVIII returned, the influence of Monsieur de Saint-Marin, like his own, could be vastly increased, and the marriage be still more suitable. The deputy procureur was, therefore, the first magistrate of Marseille, when one morning his door opened, and Monsieur Morel was announced. Anyone else would have hastened to receive him, but Villefort was a man of ability, and he knew this would be a sign of weakness. He made Morel wait in the antechamber, although he had no one with him, for the simple reason that the king's procureur always makes everyone wait. And after passing a quarter of an hour in reading the papers, he ordered Monsieur Morel to be admitted. Morel expected Villefort would be dejected. He found him as he had found him six weeks before, calm, firm, and full of that glacial politeness that most insurmountable barrier which separates the well-bred from the vulgar man. He had entered Villefort's office, expecting that the magistrate would tremble at the sight of him. On the contrary, he felt a cold shudder all over him when he saw Villefort sitting there with his elbow on his desk and his head leaning on his hand. He stopped at the door. Villefort gazed at him as if he had some difficulty in recognising him. Then, after a brief interval during which the honest shipowner turned his hat in his hands. Monsieur Morel, I believe, said Monsieur Villefort. Yes, sir. Come nearer, said the magistrate with a patronising wave of the hand, and tell me to what circumstance I owe the honour of this visit. Do you not guess, monsieur? asked Monsieur Morel. Not in the least. "'But if I can serve you in any way, I shall be delighted.' "'Everything depends on you.' "'Explain yourself, pray.' "'Monsieur,' said Morel, 
recovering his assurance as he proceeded. Do you recollect that a few days before the landing of His Majesty the Emperor, I came to intercede for a young man, the mate of my ship, who was accused of being concerned in correspondence with the island of Elba? What was the other day a crime is today a title to favor? You then served Louis XVIII, and you did not show any favor. It was your duty. Today you serve Napoleon, and you are to protect him. It is equally your duty. I come, therefore, to ask what has become of him. Villefort, by a strong effort, sought to control himself. What is his name? said he. Tell me his name. Edmond Dante. Villefort would probably have rather stood opposite the muzzle of a pistol at five and twenty paces than have heard this name spoken, but he did not blanch. Dante, repeated he. Edmond Dante. Yes, monsieur. Villefort opened a large register, then went to a table. From the table turned to his registers, and then, turning to Morel, Are you quite sure you are not mistaken, monsieur? said he, in the most natural tone in the world. Had Morel been a more quick-sighted man, or better versed in these matters, he would have been surprised at the king's procureur answering him on such a subject, instead of referring him to the governors of the prison, or the prefect of the department. But Morel, disappointed in his expectations of exciting fear, was conscious only of the other's condescension. Villefort had calculated rightly. No, said Morel, I am not mistaken. I have known him for ten years, the last four of which he was in my service. Do not you recollect, I came about six weeks ago, to plead for clemency, as I come today to plead for justice. You receive me very coldly. Oh, the royalists were very severe with the Bonapartists in those days. Monsieur, returned Villefort, I was then a royalist, because I believed the Bourbon not only the heirs to the throne, but the chosen of the nation. The miraculous return of Napoleon has conquered me, the legitimate monarch is he who is loved by his people. That's right, cried Morel. I like to hear you speak thus, and I augur well for Edmond from it. Wait a moment, said Villefort, turning over the leaves of a register. I have it. A sailor, who was about to marry a young Catalan girl. I recollect now, it was very serious charge. How so? Uh, you know that when he left here he was taken to the Palais de Justice. Well? I made my report to the authorities at Paris, and a week after he was carried off. Carried off? said Morel. What can they have done with him? Oh, he has been taken to Fenestrelle, to Pignerol, or to the Sainte Marguerite Island. Some fine morning he will return to take command of your vessel. Come, when he will, it shall be kept for him. But how is it he is not already returned? It seems to me the first care of a government should be to set at liberty those who have suffered for their adherence to it. Do not be hasty, Monsieur Morel, replied Villefort. The order of the imprisonment came from 
high authority and the order for his liberation must proceed from the same source. And as Napoleon has scarcely been reinstated a fortnight, the letters have not yet been forwarded. But, said Morel, is there no way of expediting all these formalities of releasing him from arrest? There has been no arrest. How? It is sometimes essential to government to cause a man's disappearance without leaving any traces, so that no written forms or documents may defeat their wishes. It might be so under the Bourbons, but at present... It has always been so, Monsieur Morel, since the reign of Louis Fourteenth, The emperor is more strict in prison discipline than even Louis himself, and the number of prisoners whose names are not on the register is incalculable. Had Morel even any suspicions, so much kindness would have dispelled them. Well, Monsieur de Villefort, how would you advise me to act? asked he. Petition the minister. Oh, I know what that is. The minister receives two hundred petitions every day, and does not read three. That is true, but he will read a petition countersigned and presented by me. And will you undertake to deliver it? With the greatest pleasure. Dante was then guilty, and now he is innocent, and it is as much my duty to free him as it was to condemn him. Villefort thus forestalled any danger of an inquiry which, however improbable it might be, if it did take place, would leave him defenceless. But how shall I address the minister? Sit down there, said Villefort, giving up his place to Morel, and write what I dictate. Will you be so good? Certainly, but lose no time. We have lost too much already. That is true. Only think what the poor fellow may even now be suffering. Villefort shuddered at the suggestion, but he had gone too far to draw back. Dante must be crushed to gratify Villefort's ambition. Villefort dictated a petition in which, from an excellent intention, no doubt, Dante's patriotic services were exaggerated, and he was made out one of the most active agents of Napoleon's return. It was evident that at the sight of this document, the minister would instantly release him. The petition finished. Villefort read it aloud. That will do, said he. Leave the rest to me. Will the petition go soon? Today. Countersigned by you? The... Best thing I can do will be to certify the truth of the contents of your petition. And sitting down, Villefort wrote the certificate at the bottom. What more is to be done? I will do whatever is necessary. This assurance delighted Morel, who took leave of Villefort and hastened to announce to old Dante that he would soon see his son. As for Villefort, instead of sending to Paris he carefully preserved the petition that so fearfully compromised Dante in the hopes of an event that seemed not unlikely, that is, a second restoration. Dante remained a prisoner and heard not the noise of the fall of Louis XVIII's throne or the still more tragic destruction of the empire.
Twice during the hundred days had Morel renewed his demand, and twice had Villefort soothed him with promises. At last there was Waterloo, and Morel came no more. He had done all that was in his power, and any fresh attempt would only compromise himself uselessly. Louis XVIII remounted the throne. Villefort, to whom Marseille had become filled with remorseful memories, sought and obtained the situation of King's Procureur at Toulouse, and a fortnight afterwards he married Mademoiselle de Saint-Maron, whose father now stood higher at court than ever. And so Dante, after the Hundred Days and after Waterloo, remained in his dungeon, forgotten of earth and heaven. Donglard comprehended the full extent of the wretched fate that overwhelmed Dante, and when Napoleon returned to France, he, after the manner of mediocre minds, termed the coincidence a decree of providence. But when Napoleon returned to Paris, Donglard's heart failed him, and he lived in constant fear of Dante's return on a mission of vengeance. He therefore informed Monsieur Morel of his wish to quit the sea and obtained a recommendation from him to a Spanish merchant, into whose service he entered at the end of March, that is, ten or twelve days after Napoleon's return. He then left for Madrid, and was no more heard of. Fernand, understanding nothing except that Dante was absent, what had become of him he cared not to inquire. Only during the respite the absence of his rival afforded him, he reflected partly on the means of deceiving Mercedes as to the cause of his absence, partly on plans of emigration and abduction, as from time to time he sat sad and motionless on the summit of Cape Faro, at the spot from whence Marseille and the Catalans are visible, watching for the apparition of a young and handsome man, who was for him also the messenger of vengeance. Fernand's mind was made up, he would shoot Dante, and then kill himself. But Fernand was mistaken. A man of his disposition never kills himself, for he constantly hopes. During this time the Empire made its last conscription, and every man in France capable of bearing arms rushed to obey the summons of the Emperor. Fernand departed with the rest, bearing with him the terrible thought that while he was away, his rival would perhaps return and marry Mercedes. Had Fernand really meant to kill himself, he would have done so when he parted from Mercedes. His devotion and the compassion he showed for her misfortunes produced the effect they always produce on noble minds. Mercedes had always had a sincere regard for Fernand, and this was now strengthened by gratitude. My brother, said she as she placed his knapsack on his shoulders, be careful of yourself, for if you are killed, I shall be alone in the world. These words carried a ray of hope into Fernand's heart. Should Dante not return, Mercedes might one day be his. Mercedes was left alone face to face with the vast plain that had never seemed so barren, and the sea that had never seemed so vast. Bathed in tears, she wandered about the Catalan village. Sometimes she stood mute and motionless as a statue, looking towards Marseille, at other times gazing on the sea and debating as to whether it were not better to cast herself into the abyss of the ocean, and thus end her woes. 
It was not want of courage that prevented her putting this resolution into execution, but her religious feelings came to her aid and saved her. Caderousse was, like Fernand, enrolled in the army, but being married and eight years older, he was merely sent to the frontier. Old Dante, who was only sustained by hope, lost all hope at Napoleon's downfall. Five months after he had been separated from his son, and almost at the hour of his arrest, he breathed his last in Mercedes's arms. Monsieur Morel paid the expenses of his funeral, and a few small debts the poor old man had contracted. There was more than benevolence in this action. There was courage. The South was aflame, and to assist even on his deathbed, the father of so dangerous a Bonapartist as Dante was stigmatized as a crime. End of chapter 13「Chapter 14 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Two Prisoners A year after Louis XVIII's restoration, a visit was made by the Inspector-General of Prisons. Dante, in his cell, heard the noise of preparation, sounds that at the depth where he lay would have been inaudible to any but the ear of a prisoner who could hear the splash of the drop of water that every hour fell from the roof of his dungeon. He guessed something uncommon was passing among the living, but he had so long ceased to have any intercourse with the world that he looked upon himself as dead. The inspector visited, one after another, the cells and dungeons of several of the prisoners, whose good behaviour or stupidity recommended them to the clemency of the government. He inquired how they were fed, and if they had any request to make. The universal response was that the fare was detestable, and that they wanted to be set free. The inspector asked if they had anything else to ask for. They shook their heads. What could they desire beyond their liberty? The inspector turned smilingly to the governor. I do not know what reason a government can assign for these useless visits. When you see one prisoner, you see all. Always the same thing, ill-fed and innocent. Are there any others? Yes, the dangerous and mad prisoners are in the dungeons. Let us visit them, said the inspector with an air of fatigue. We must play the farce to the end. Let us see the dungeons. Let us first send for two soldiers, said the governor. The prisoners are sometimes through mere uneasiness of life, and in order to be sentenced to death, commit acts of useless violence, and you might fall a victim. Take all the needful precautions, replied the inspector. Two soldiers were accordingly sent for, and the inspector descended a stairway so foul, so humid, so dark as to be loathsome to sight, smell, and respiration. Oh, cried the inspector, who can live here? A most dangerous conspirator, a man we are ordered to keep the most strict watch over, as he is daring and resolute. He is alone? Certainly. How long has he been there? Nearly a year. Was he placed here when he first arrived? No, 
not until he attempted to kill the turnkey who took his food to him. To kill the turnkey? Yes, the very one who is lighting us. Is it not true, Antoine? asked the governor. True enough. But he wanted to kill me, returned the turnkey. He must be mad, said the inspector. He is worse than that. He is a devil, returned the turnkey. Shall I complain of him? demanded the inspector. Oh, no, it is useless. Besides, he is almost mad now, and in another year you'll be quite so. So much the better for him. He will suffer less, said the inspector. He was, as this remark shows, a man full of philanthropy, and in every way fit for his office. You are right, sir, replied the governor, and this remark proves that you have deeply considered the subject. And now we have in a dungeon about twenty feet distant, and to which you descend by another stair, an abbe, former leader of a party in Italy, who has been here since 1811, and in 1813 he went mad, and the change is astonishing. He used to weep, he now laughs, he grew thin, he now grows fat. You had better see him, for his madness is amusing. I will see them both, returned the inspector. I must conscientiously perform my duty. This was the inspector's first visit. He wished to display his authority. Uh, let us visit this one first, added he. By all means, replied the governor, and he signed to the turnkey to open the door. At the sound of the key turning in the lock and the creaking of the hinges, Dante, who was crouched in a corner of the dungeon, whence he could see the ray of light that came through a narrow iron grating above, raised his head. Seeing a stranger, escorted by two turnkeys holding torches, and accompanied by two soldiers, and to whom the governor spoke bareheaded, Dante, who guessed the truth, and that the moment to address himself to the superior authorities was come, sprang forward with clasped hands. The soldiers interposed their bayonets, for they thought that he was about to attack the inspector, and the latter recoiled two or three steps. Dante saw that he was looked upon as dangerous. Then, infusing all the humility he possessed into his eyes and voice, he addressed the inspector, and sought to inspire him with pity. The inspector listened attentively, then turning to the governor, observed, "'He will become religious. He is already more gentle. He is afraid.' and retreated before the bayonets. Madmen are not afraid of anything. I made some curious observations on this at Charenton. Then turning to the prisoner, What is it you want? said he. I want to know what crime I have committed, to be tried, and if I am guilty, to be shot, if innocent, to be set at liberty. Are you well fed? said the inspector. I believe so. I don't know. It's of no consequence. What matters really, not only to me, but to officers of justice and the king, is that an innocent man should languish in prison, the victim of an infamous denunciation, to die here, cursing his executioners. You are very humble today, remarked the governor. You are not so always. The other day, for instance, when you tried to kill the turnkey. It is true, sir, and I beg his pardon for he has always been very good to me, but I was mad. 
And you are not so any longer? No. In captivity has subdued me. I have been here so long. So long? When were you arrested, then? asked the inspector. The 28th of February, 1815, at half past two in the afternoon. Today is the 30th of July, 1816. Why, it is but 17 months. Only 17 months, replied Dante. Oh, you do not know what is 17 months in prison. 17 ages, rather, especially to a man who, like me, had arrived at the summit of his ambition. To a man who, like me, was on the point of marrying a woman he adored, who saw an honourable career open up before him, and who loses all in an instant, who sees his prospects destroyed, and is ignorant of the fate of his affianced wife, and whether his aged father be still living. Seventeen months, captivity to a sailor accustomed to the boundless ocean, is a worse punishment than human crime can ever merit. Have pity on me, then, and ask for me not intelligence, but a trial, not pardon, but a verdict. A trial, sir. I ask only for a trial that surely cannot be denied to one who is accused. We shall see, said the inspector, then turning to the governor. On my word, the poor devil touches me. You must show me the proofs against him. Certainly, but you will find terrible charges. Monsieur, continued Dante, I know it is not in your power to release me, but you can plead for me. You can have me tried, and that is all I ask. Let me know my crime and the reason why I was condemned. Uncertainty is worse than all. Go on with the lights, said the inspector. Monsieur, cried Dante, I can tell by your voice you are touched with pity. Tell me at least to hope. I cannot tell you that, replied the inspector. I can only promise to examine into your case. Oh, I am free, then I am saved. Who arrested you? Monsieur Villefort. See him and hear what he says. Monsieur Villefort is no longer at Marseille. He is now at Toulouse. I am no longer surprised at my detention, murmured Dante, since my only protector is removed. Had Monsieur Villefort any cause of personal dislike to you? None. On the contrary, he was very kind to me. I can then rely on the notes he has left concerning you. Entirely. That is well. Wait patiently, then. Dante fell on his knees and prayed earnestly. The door closed, but this time a fresh inmate was left with Dante. Hope. Will you see the register at once? asked the governor. Or proceed to the other cell? Let us visit them all, said the inspector. If I once went up those stairs, I should never have the courage to come down again. Ah, this is not like the other, and this madness is less affecting than this one's display of reason. What is his folly? He fancies he possesses an immense treasure. The first year he offered the government a million of francs for his release. The second, two. The third, three. And so on progressively. He is now in his fifth year of captivity. He will ask to speak to you in private, and offer you five million. How curious. What is his name? The Abbe Faria. Numero 27, said the inspector. 
It is here. Unlock the door, Antoine. The turnkey obeyed, and the inspector gazed curiously into the chamber of the mad abbe. In the centre of the cell, in a circle traced with a fragment of plaster detached from the wall, sat a man whose tattered garment scarcely covered him. He was drawing in this circle geometrical lines, and seemed as much absorbed in his problem as Archimedes was when the soldier of Marcellus slew him. He did not move at the sound of the door, and continued his calculations until the flash of the torches lighted up with an unwonted glare the sombre walls of his cell. Then, raising his head, he perceived with astonishment the number of persons present. He hastily seized the coverlet of his bed and wrapped it around him. "'What is it you want?' said the inspector. "'I, monsieur,' replied the abbé with an air of surprise, "'I want nothing.' "'You do not understand,' continued the inspector. "'I am sent here by government to visit the prison, "'and hear the requests of the prisoners.' "'Oh, that is a different,' cried the abbé, "'and we shall understand each other. "'I hope.' "'There now,' whispered the governor, "'it is just as I told you.' "'Monsieur,' continued the prisoner, "'I am the abbé Faria, born at Roma.' I was for twenty years a cardinal's father's secretary. I was arrested. Why, I know not. Toward the beginning of the year, 1811. Since then, I have demanded my liberty from the Italian and French government. Why from the French government? Because I was arrested at Pimbino, and I presume that, like Milano and Florence, Pilombino has become the capital of some French department. "'Ah,' said the inspector, "'you have not the latest news from Italy.' "'My information dates from the day on which I was arrested,' returned the Abbe Faria. "'And as the emperor had created the kingdom of Rome for his infant son, "'I presume that he has realized the dream of Machiavelli and Cesar Borgia, "'which was to make Italy a united kingdom.' "'Monsieur,' returned the inspector. Providence has changed this gigantic plan you advocate so warmly. It is the only means of rendering Italy strong, happy, and independent. Very possibly. Only I am not come to discuss politics, but to inquire if you have anything to ask or to complain of. The food is the same as in other prisons. That is, very bad. The lodging is very unhelpful, but on the whole, passable for a dungeon. But it is not that which I wish to speak of, but a secret I have to reveal of the greatest importance. We are coming to the point, whispered the governor. It is for that reason I am delighted to see you, continued the abbe, although you have disturbed me in a most important calculation, which, if it succeeded, would possibly change Newton's system. Could you allow me a few words in private? What did I tell you? said the governor. You knew him, returned the inspector with a smile. What you ask is impossible, monsieur, continued he, addressing Faria. But, said the abbe, I would speak to you of a larger sum, amounting to five millions. The very sum you named 
whispered the inspector in his turn. However, continued Faria, seeing that the inspector was about to depart, it is not absolutely necessary for us to be alone. The governor can be present. Unfortunately, said the governor, I know beforehand what you are about to say. It concerns your treasures, does it not? Fariam fixed his eyes on him with an expression that would have convinced anyone else of his sanity. Of course, said he. Of what else should I speak? Mr. Inspector, continued the governor, I can tell you the story as well as he, for it has been dinned in my ears for the last four or five years. That proves, returned the abbe, that you are like those of Holy Writ, who having ears hear not, and having eyes see not. My dear sir, the government is rich and doesn't want your treasures, replied the inspector. Keep them until you are liberated. The abbe's eyes glistened. He seized the inspector's hand. But what if I am not liberated, cried he, and am detained here until my death? This treasure will be lost. Had not government better profit by it? I will offer six a million, and I will content myself with the rest, if they will only give me my liberty. On my word, said the inspector in a low tone, had I not been told beforehand that this man was mad, I should believe what he says. I am not mad, replied Faria, with that acuteness of hearing peculiar to prisoners. The treasure I speak of really exists, and I offer to sign an agreement with you, in which I promise to lead you to the spot where you shall dig. And if I deceive you, bring me here again. I ask no more. The governor laughed. Is the spot far from here? A hundred leagues. It is not ill-planned, said the governor. If all the prisoners took it into their heads to travel a hundred leagues, and their guardians consented to accompany them, they would have a capital chance of escaping. The scheme is well known, said the inspector, and the abbe's plan has not even the merit of originality. Then turning to Faria, I inquired if you are well fed, said he. Swear to me, replied Faria, to free me if what I tell you prove true, and I will stay here while you go to the spot. Are you well fed, repeated the inspector. Monsieur, you can run no risk, for as I told you, I will stay here, so there is no chance of me escaping. You do not reply to my question, replied the inspector impatiently. Nor you to mine, cried the abbe. You will not accept my gold. I will keep it for myself. You refuse me my liberty. God will give it to me. And the abbe, casting away his coverlet, resumed his place, and continued his calculations. "'What is he doing there?' said the inspector. "'Counting his treasures,' replied the governor. Faria replied to this sarcasm with a glance of profound contempt. They went out. The turnkey closed the door behind them. "'He was wealthy once, perhaps,' said the inspector. "'Or dreamed he was, and awoke mad.' "'After all,' said the inspector. If he had been rich, he would not have been here. So the matter ended for the Abbe Faria. He remained in his cell, and this visit only increased the belief in his insanity. Caligula, or Nero, 
those treasure seekers, those desirers of the impossible, would have accorded to the poor wretch, in exchange for his wealth, the liberty he so earnestly prayed for. But the kings of modern times, restrained by the limits of mere probability, have neither courage nor desire. They fear the ear that hears their orders and the eye that scrutinizes their actions. Formerly they believed themselves sprung from Jupiter and shielded by their birth, but nowadays they are not inviolable. It has always been against the policy of despotic governments to suffer the victims of their persecutions to reappear. As the Inquisition rarely allowed its victims to be seen with their limbs distorted and their flesh lacerated by torture, so madness is always concealed in its cell, from whence should it depart, it is conveyed to some gloomy hospital, where the doctor has no thought for man or mind in the mutilated being the jailer delivers to him. The very madness of the Abbe Faria, gone mad in prison, condemned him to perpetual captivity. The inspector kept his word with Dante. He examined the register and found the following note concerning him. Edmond Dante, violent Bonapartist, took an active part in the return from Elba. The greatest watchfulness and care to be exercised. This note was in a different hand from the rest, which showed that it had been added since his confinement. The inspector could not contend against this accusation. He simply wrote, nothing to be done. This visit had infused new vigour into Dante. He had till then forgotten the date, but now with a fragment of plaster he wrote the date, 30th of July, 1816, and made a mark every day in order not to lose his reckoning again. Days and weeks passed away, then months. Dante still waited. He at first expected to be freed in a fortnight, this fortnight expired. He decided that the inspector would do nothing until his return to Paris, and that he would not reach there until his circuit was finished. He therefore fixed three months. Three months passed away, then six more. Finally, ten months and a half had gone by, and no favourable change had taken place, and Dante began to fancy the inspector's visit but a dream, an illusion of the brain. At the expiration of a year, the governor was transferred. He had obtained the charge of the fortress at Ham. He took with him several of his subordinates, and amongst them Dante's jailer. A new governor arrived. It would have been too tedious to acquire the names of the prisoners. He learned their numbers instead. This horrible place contained fifty cells. Their inhabitants were designated by the numbers of their cell, and the unhappy young man was no longer called Edmond Dante. He was now number 34. End of chapter 14. Chapter 15 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. Number 34 and Number 27. Dante passed through all the stages of torture natural to prisoners in suspense. He was sustained at first by that pride of conscious innocence, which is the sequence to hope. Then he began to doubt his own innocence, which justified in some measure 
the governor's belief in his mental alienation. And then, relaxing his sentiment of pride, he addressed his supplications, not to God, but to man. God is always the last resource. Unfortunates who ought to begin with God do not have any hope in him till they have exhausted all other means of deliverance. Dante asked to be removed from his present dungeon into another, for a change, however disadvantageous, was still a change, and would afford him some amusement. He entreated to be allowed to walk about, to have fresh air, books and writing materials. His requests were not granted, but he went on asking all the same. He accustomed himself to speaking to the new jailer, although the latter was, if possible, more taciturn than the old one, but still to speak to a man, even though mute was something. Dante spoke for the sake of hearing his own voice. He had tried to speak when alone, but the sound of his voice terrified him. Often before his captivity, Dante's mind had revolted at the idea of assemblages of prisoners made up of thieves, vagabonds and murderers. He now wished to be amongst them, in order to see some other faces besides that of his jailer. He sighed for the galleys, with the infamous costume, the chain and the brand on the shoulder. The galley slaves breathed the fresh air of heaven and saw each other. They were very happy. He besought the jailer one day to let him have a companion, were it even the mad abbe. The jailer, though rough and hardened by the constant sight of so much suffering, was yet a man. At the bottom of his heart he had often had a feeling of pity for this unhappy young man who suffered so, and he laid the request of number 34 before the governor. But the latter sapiently imagined that Dante wished to conspire or attempt an escape, and refused his request. Dante had exhausted all human resources, and he then turned to God. All the pious ideas that had been so long forgotten returned. He recollected the prayers his mother had taught him and discovered a new meaning in every word, for in prosperity prayers seem but a mere medley of words until misfortune comes, and the unhappy sufferer first understands the meaning of the sublime language in which he invokes the pity of heaven. He prayed and prayed aloud, no longer terrified at the sound of his own voice, for he fell into a sort of ecstasy. He laid every action of his life before the Almighty, proposed tasks to accomplish, and at the end of every prayer introduced the entreaty oftener addressed to man than to God. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. Yet in spite of his earnest prayers, Dante remained a prisoner. Then gloom settled heavily upon him. Dante was a man of great simplicity of thought, and without education. He could not therefore in the solitude of his dungeon traverse in mental vision the history of the ages, bring to life the nations that had perished, and rebuild the ancient cities so vast and stupendous in the light of the imagination, and that passed before the eye glowing with celestial colours in Martin's Babylonian pictures. He could not do this. He whose past life was so short, whose present so melancholy, and his future so doubtful. Nineteen years of light to reflect upon in eternal darkness. No distraction could come to his aid. His energetic spirit, that would have exulted in thus revisiting the past, was imprisoned like an eagle in a cage. He clung to one idea, 
that of his happiness, destroyed without apparent cause by an unheard-of fatality. He considered and reconsidered this idea, devoured it, so to speak, as the implacable Ugiolino devours the skull of Archbishop Roger in the Inferno of Dante. Rage supplanted religious fervour. Dante uttered blasphemies that made his jailer recoil with horror, dashed himself furiously against the walls of his prison, wreaked his anger upon everything and chiefly upon himself, so that the least thing, a grain of sand, a straw or a breath of air that annoyed him, led to paroxysms of fury. Then the letter that Villefort had showed to him recurred to his mind, and every line gleamed forth in fiery letters on the wall, like the menetekel apasim of Belshazzar. He told himself that it was the enmity of man and not the vengeance of heaven that had thus plunged him into the deepest misery. He consigned his unknown persecutors to the most horrible tortures he could imagine and found them all insufficient, because after torture came death, and after death, if not repose, at least the boon of unconsciousness. By dint of constantly dwelling on the idea that tranquillity was death, and if punishment were the end in view other tortures than death must be invented, he began to reflect on suicide. Unhappy he who, on the brink of misfortune, broods over ideas like these. Before him is a dead sea that stretches in Asia calm before the eye, but he who unwarily ventures within its embrace finds himself struggling with a monster that would drag him down to perdition. Once thus ensnared, unless the protecting hand of God snatch him thence, all is over, and his struggles but tend to hasten his destruction. This state of mental anguish is, however, less terrible than the sufferings that proceed, or the punishment that possibly will follow. There is a sort of consolation at the contemplation of the yawning abyss, at the bottom of which lie darkness and obscurity. Edmond found some solace in these ideas. All his sorrows, all his sufferings, with their train of gloomy spectres, fled from his cell when the angel of death seemed about to enter. Dante reviewed his past life with composure, and, looking forward with terror to his future existence, chose that middle line that seemed to afford him a refuge. Sometimes, said he, in my voyage, when I was a man and commanded other men, I have seen the heavens overcast, the sea rage and foam, the storm arise, and like a monstrous bird, beating the two horizons with its wings. Then I felt that my vessel was a vain refuge, that trembled and shook before the tempest. Soon the fury of the waves and the sight of the sharp rocks announced the approach of my death, and death then terrified me, and I used all my skill and intelligence as a man and a sailor to struggle against the wrath of God. But I did so because I was happy, because I had not courted death, because to be cast upon a bed of rocks and seaweed seemed terrible, because I was unwilling that I, a creature made for the service of God, should serve for food to the gulls and ravens. But now it is different. I have lost all that, that bound me to, to life. Death smiles and invites me to repose. I die after my own manner. I die exhausted and broken-spirited, 
as I fall asleep when I have paced three thousand times around my cell. No sooner had this idea taken possession of him than he became more composed, arranged his couch to the best of his power, ate little and slept less, and found existence almost supportable, because he felt that he could throw it off at pleasure like a worn-out garment. Two methods of self-destruction were at his disposal. He could hang himself with his handkerchief to the window bars, or refuse food and die of starvation. But the first was repugnant to him. Dante had always entertained the greatest horror of pirates who were hung up to the yardarm. He would not die by what seemed an infamous death. He resolved to adopt the second, and began that day to carry out his resolve. Nearly four years had passed away. At the end of the second, he had ceased to mark the lapse of time. Dante said, I wish to die, and had chosen the manner of his death, and fearful of changing his mind, he had taken an oath to die. When my morning and evening meals are brought, thought he, I will cast them out of the window, and they will think that I have eaten them. He kept his word. Twice a day he cast out, through the barred aperture, the provisions his jailer brought him. At first gaily, then with deliberation, and at last with regret. Nothing but the recollection of his oath gave him strength to proceed. Hunger made viands once repugnant, now acceptable. He held a plate in his hand for an hour at a time, and gazed thoughtfully at the morsel of bad meat, of tainted fish, of black and mouldy bread. It was the last yearning for life, contending with the resolution of despair. Then his dungeon seemed less sombre, his prospects less desperate. He was still young. He was only four or five and twenty. He had nearly fifty years to live. What unforeseen events might not open his prison door and restore him to liberty? Then he raised to his lips the repast that, like a voluntary tantalus, he refused himself. But he thought of his oath, and he would not break it. He persisted until at last he had not sufficient strength to rise and cast his supper out of the loophole. The next morning he could not see or hear. The jailer feared he was dangerously ill. Edmond hoped he was dying. Thus the day passed away. Edmund felt a sort of stupor creeping over him, which brought with it a feeling almost of content. The gnawing pain at his stomach had ceased. His thirst had abated. When he closed his eyes, he saw myriads of lights dancing before them like the will-o'-the-wisps that play about the marshes. It was the twilight of that mysterious country called Death. Suddenly, about nine o'clock in the evening, Edmond heard a hollow sound in the wall against which he was lying. So many loathsome animals inhabited the prison that their noise did not in general awake him. But whether abstinence had quickened his faculties, or whether the noise was really louder than usual, Edmond raised his head and listened. It was a continual scratching as if made by a huge claw, a powerful tooth or some iron instrument attacking the stones. Although weakened, the young man's brain instantly responded to the idea that haunts all prisoners liberty. It seemed to him that heaven had at length taken pity on him, and had sent this noise to warn him on the very brink of the abyss. 
Perhaps one of those beloved ones he had so often thought of was thinking of him and striving to diminish the distance that separated them. No, no, doubtless he was deceived, and it was but one of those dreams that forerun death. Edmond still heard the sound. It lasted nearly three hours. He then heard a noise of something falling, and all was silent. Some hours afterwards it began again, nearer and more distinct. Edmund was intensely interested. Suddenly the jailer entered. For a week since he had resolved to die, and during the four days that he had been carrying out his purpose, Edmond had not spoken to the attendant, had not answered him when he inquired what was the matter with him, and turned his face to the wall when he looked too curiously at him. But now the jailer might hear the noise and put an end to it, and so destroy a ray of something like hope that soothed his last moments. The jailer brought him his breakfast. Dante raised himself up and began to talk about everything, about the bad quality of the food, about the coldness of his dungeon, grumbling and complaining in order to have an excuse for speaking louder and wearying the patience of his jailer, who out of kindness of heart had brought broth and white bread for his prisoner. Fortunately, he fancied that Dante was delirious, and placing the food on the rickety table, he withdrew. Edmond listened, and the sound became more and more distinct. There can be no doubt about it, thought he. It is some prisoner who is striving to obtain his freedom. Oh, if I only were there to help him! Suddenly another idea took possession of his mind, so used to misfortune that it was scarcely capable of hope. The idea that the noise was made by workmen the governor had ordered to repair the neighbouring dungeon. It was easy to ascertain this, but how could he risk the question? It was easy to call his jailer's attention to the noise and watch his countenance as he listened. But might he not by this means destroy hopes far more important than the short-lived satisfaction of his own curiosity? Unfortunately, Edmond's brain was still so feeble that he could not bend his thoughts to anything in particular. He saw but one means of restoring lucidity and clearness to his judgment. He turned his eyes towards the soup which the jailer had brought, rose, staggered towards it, raised the vessel to his lips and drank off the contents with a feeling of indescribable pleasure. He had often heard that shipwrecked persons had died through having eagerly devoured too much food. Edmond replaced on the table the bread he was about to devour and returned to his couch. He did not wish to die. He soon felt that his ideas became again collected. He could think and strengthen his thoughts by reasoning. Then he said to himself, I must put this to the test, but without compromising anybody. If it is a workman, I need but knock against the wall and he will cease to work in order to find out who is knocking and why he does so. But as his occupation is sanctioned by the governor, he will soon resume it. If, on the contrary, it is a prisoner, the noise I will make will alarm him. He will cease and not begin again until he thinks everyone is asleep. Edmond rose again, but this time his legs did not tremble and his sight was clear. He went to a corner of his dungeon, detached a stone and with it knocked against the wall where the sound came. He struck thrice. 
At the first blow, the sound ceased, as if by magic. Edmond listened intently. An hour passed, two hours passed, and no sound was heard from the wall. All was silent there. Full of hope, Edmund swallowed a few mouthfuls of bread and water, and thanks to the vigour of his constitution, found himself well-nigh recovered. The day passed away in utter silence. Night came without recurrence of the noise. "'It is a prisoner,' said Edmund joyfully. The night passed in perfect silence. Edmond did not close his eyes. In the morning the jailer brought him fresh provisions. He had already devoured those of the previous day. He ate these, listening anxiously for the sound, walking round and round his cell, shaking the iron bars of the loophole, restoring vigour and agility to his limbs by exercise, and so preparing himself for his future destiny. At intervals he listened to learn if the noise had not begun again, and grew impatient at the prudence of the prisoner, who did not guess he had been disturbed by a captive as anxious for liberty as himself. Three days passed. Seventy-two long, tedious hours, which he counted off by minutes. At length, one evening, as the jailer was visiting him for the last time that night, Dante, with his ear for the hundredth time at the wall, fancied he heard an almost imperceptible movement among the stones. He moved away, walked up and down his cell to collect his thoughts, and then went back and listened. The matter was no longer doubtful. Something was at work on the other side of the wall. The prisoner had discovered the danger, and had substituted a lever for a chisel. Encouraged by this discovery, Edmund determined to assist the indefatigable labourer. He began by moving his bed and looking around for anything with which he could pierce the wall, penetrate the moist cement, and displace a stone. He saw nothing. He had no knife or sharp instrument. The window grating was of iron, but he had too often assured himself of its solidity. All his furniture consisted of a bed, a chair, a table, a pail, and a jug. The bed had iron clamps, but they were screwed to the wood, and it would have required a screwdriver to take them off. The table and chair had nothing. The pail had once possessed a handle, but that had been removed. Dante had but one resource, which was to break the jug, and with one of the sharp fragments attack the wall. He let the jug fall on the floor, and it broke in pieces. Dante concealed two or three of the sharpest fragments in his bed, leaving the rest on the floor. The breaking of his jug was too natural an accident to excite suspicion. Edmond had all the night to work in, but in the darkness he could not do much, and he soon felt that he was working against something very hard. He pushed back his bed and waited for day. All night he heard the subterranean workman, who continued to mine his way. Day came, the jailer entered. Dante told him that the jug had fallen from his hands while he was drinking, and the jailer went grumblingly to fetch another one, without giving himself the trouble to remove the fragments of the broken one. He returned speedily, advised the prisoner to be more careful, and departed. Dante heard joyfully the key grate in the lock. He listened until the sound of steps died away, and then, hastily displacing his bed, saw by the faint light that penetrated into his cell that he had laboured uselessly the previous evening in attacking the stone instead of removing the plaster that surrounded it. The damp had rendered it friable, 
and Dante was able to break it off in small morsels, it is true. But at the end of a half an hour, he had scraped off a handful. A mathematician might have calculated that in two years, supposing that the rock was not encountered, a passage twenty feet long and two feet broad might be formed. The prisoner reproached himself with not having thus employed the hours he had passed in vain hopes, prayer and despondency. During the six years that he had been imprisoned, what might he not have accomplished? In three days he had succeeded with the utmost precaution in removing the cement and exposing the stonework. The wall was built of rough stones, among which, to give strength to the structure, blocks of hewn stone were at intervals embedded. It was one of these he had uncovered, and which he must remove from its socket. Dante strove to do this with his nails, but they were too weak. The fragments of the jug broke, and after an hour of useless toil, he paused. Was he to be thus stopped at the beginning, and was he to wait inactive until his fellow workman had completed his task? Suddenly, an idea occurred to him. He smiled, and the perspiration dried on his forehead. The jailer always brought Dante's soup in an iron saucepan. This saucepan contained soup for both prisoners, for Dante had noticed that it was either quite full or half empty, according as the turnkey gave it to him or to his companion first. The handle of this saucepan was of iron. Dante would have given ten years of his life in exchange for it. The jailer was accustomed to pour the contents of the saucepan into Dante's plate, and Dante, after eating his soup with a wooden spoon, washed the plate, which thus served for every day. Now, when evening came, Dante put his plate on the ground near the door. The jailer, as he entered, stepped on it and broke it. This time, he could not blame Dante. He was wrong to leave it there, but the jailer was wrong not to have looked before him. The jailer, therefore, only grumbled when he looked about for something to pour the soup into. Dante's entire dinner service consisted of one plate. There was no alternative. Leave the saucepan, said Dante. You can take it away when you bring my breakfast. This advice was to the jailer's taste, as it spared him the necessity of making another trip. He left the saucepan. Dante was beside himself with joy. He rapidly devoured his food, and after waiting an hour lest the jailer should change his mind and return, he removed his bed, took the handle of the saucepan, inserted the point between the hewn stone and rough stones of the wall, and employed it as a lever. A slight oscillation showed Dante that all went well. At the end of an hour, the stone was extricated from the wall, leaving a cavity a foot and a half in diameter. Dante carefully collected the plaster, carried it into the corner of his cell, and covered it with earth. Then, wishing to make the best use of his time while he had the means of labour, he continued to work without ceasing. At the dawn of day he replaced the stone, pushed his bed against the wall, and lay down. The breakfast consisted of a piece of bread. The jailer entered and placed the bread on the table. "'Well, don't you intend to bring me another plate?' said Dante. "'No,' replied the turnkey. "'You destroy everything.' First you break your jug, then you make me break your plate. If all the prisoners followed your example, the government would be ruined. I shall leave you the saucepan and pour your soup into that. So for the future, 
I hope you will not be so destructive. Dante raised his eyes to heaven and clasped his hands beneath the coverlet. He felt more gratitude for the possession of his piece of iron than he had ever felt for anything. He'd noticed, however, that the prisoner on the other side had ceased to labour. No matter. This was a greater reason for proceeding. If his neighbour would not come to him, he would go to his neighbour. All day he toiled on untiringly, and by the evening he had succeeded in extracting ten handfuls of plaster and fragments of stone. When the hour for his jailer's visit arrived, Dante straightened the handle of the saucepan as well as he could, and placed it in its accustomed place. The turnkey poured his ration of soup into it, together with the fish, for thrice a week the prisoners were deprived of meat. This would have been a method of reckoning time had not Dante long ceased to do so. Having poured out the soup, the turnkey retired. Dante wished to ascertain whether his neighbour had really ceased to work. He listened. All was silent, as it had been for the last three days. Dante sighed. It was evident that his neighbour distrusted him. However, he toiled on all the night without being discouraged. But after two or three hours he encountered an obstacle. The iron made no impression, but met with a smooth surface. Dante touched it, and found that it was a beam. This beam crossed, or rather blocked up, the hole Dante had made. It was necessary, therefore, to dig above or under it. The unhappy young man had not thought of this. Oh, my God, my God, murmured he. I have so earnestly prayed to you that I hoped my prayers had been heard. After having deprived me of my liberty, after having deprived me of death, after having recalled me to existence, my God, have pity on me and do not let me die in despair. Who talks of God and despair at the same time? said a voice that seemed to come from beneath the earth and deadened by the distance sounded hollow and sepulchral in the young man's ears. Edmond's hair stood on end and he rose to his knees. Ah, said he, I hear a human voice. Edmond had not heard anyone speak save his jailer for four or five years, and a jailer is no man to a prisoner. He is a living door, a barrier of flesh and blood adding strength to the restraints of oak and iron. In the name of heaven, cried Dante, speak again, though the sound of your voice terrifies me. Who are you? Who are you? said the voice. An unhappy prisoner, replied Dante, who made no hesitation in answering. Of what a country? A Frenchman. Your name? Edmond Dante. Your profession? A sailor. How long have you been here? Since the 28th of February, 1815. Your crime? I am innocent. But of what are you accused? of having conspired to aid the Emperor's return. What? For the Emperor's return? The Emperor is no longer on the throne, then. He abdicated at Fontainebleau in 1814 and was sent to the island of Elba. But how long have you been here that you are ignorant of all this? Since 1811. Dante shuddered. This man had been four years longer than himself in prison. Do not dig any more, said the voice. 
Only tell me how high is, is your excavation? On a level with the floor. How is it concealed? Behind my bed. Has your bed been moved since you have been a prisoner? No. What does your chamber open on? A corridor. And the corridor? On a court. Alas! murmured the voice. Oh, what is the matter? cried Dante. I have made a mistake owing to an error in my plans. I took the wrong angle and have come out fifteen feet from where I intended. I took the wall you are mining for the outer wall of the fortress. But then you would be close to the sea. That is what I hoped. And supposing you had succeeded, I should have thrown myself into the sea, gained one of the islands near here, the Ile de Dôme or the Ile de Tiboulon, and then I should have been safe. Could you have swum so far? Heaven would have given me strength. But now all is lost. All? Yes. Stop up your excavation carefully. Do not work any more, and wait until you hear from me. Tell me at least who you are. I am... I am a number twenty-seven. You mistrust me, then, said Dante. Edmund fancied he heard a bitter laugh resounding from the depths. Oh, I am a Christian, cried Dante guessing instinctively that this man meant to abandon him. I swear to you, by him who died for us, that naught shall induce me to breathe one syllable to my jailers. But I conjure you, do not abandon me. If you do, I swear to you, for I have got to the end of my strength, that I will dash my brains out against the wall, and you will have my death to reproach yourself with. How old are you? Your voice is that of a young man. I do not know my age, for I have not counted the years I have been here. All I do know is that I was just nineteen when I was arrested the 28th of February, 1815. Not quite twenty-six, murmured the voice. At that age, he cannot be a traitor. Oh, no, no, cried Dante. I swear to you again, rather than betray you, I would allow myself to be hacked in pieces. You have done well to speak to me, and ask for my assistance. For I was about to form another plan, and leave you. But your age reassures me. I will not forget you. Wait. How long? I must calculate our chances. I will give you the signal. But you will not leave me. You will come to me, or you will let me come to you. We will escape. And if we cannot escape, we will talk. You of those whom you love, and I of those whom I love. You must love somebody. No, I am alone in the world. Then you will love me. If you are young, I will be your comrade. If you are old, I will be your son. I have a father, who is seventy, if he yet lives. I only love him and a young girl called Mercedes. My father has not yet forgotten me. I am sure, but God alone knows if she loves me still. I shall love you as I loved my father. It is well, returned the voice, tomorrow. These few words were uttered with an accent that left no doubt of his insincerity. Dante rose, 
dispersed the fragments with the same precaution as before, and pushed his bed back against the wall. He then gave himself up to his happiness. He would no longer be alone. He was, perhaps, about to regain his liberty. At the worst he would have a companion, and captivity that is shared is but half captivity. Plaints made in common are almost prayers, and prayers where two or three are gathered together invoke the mercy of heaven. All day Dante walked up and down his cell. He sat down occasionally on his bed, pressing his hand on his heart. At the slightest noise he bounded towards the door. Once or twice the thought crossed his mind that he might be separated from this unknown whom he loved already, and then his mind was made up. When the jailer moved his bed and stooped to examine the opening, he would kill him with his water jug. He would be condemned to die, but he was about to die of grief and despair when this miraculous noise recalled him to life. The jailer came in the evening. Dante was on his bed. It seemed to him that thus he better guarded the unfinished opening. Doubtless there was a strange expression in his eyes, for the jailer said, Come, are you going mad again? Dante did not answer. He feared that the emotion of his voice would betray him. The jailer went away, shaking his head. Night came. Dante hoped that his neighbour would profit by the silence to address him, but he was mistaken. The next morning, however, just as he removed his bed from the wall, he heard three knocks. He threw himself on his knees. "'Is it you?' said he. "'I am here.' "'Is your jailer gone?' "'Yes,' said Dante. "'You will not return until the evening, so that we have twelve hours before us.' "'I can work, then,' said the voice. "'Oh, yes, yes, this is instant. I entreat you.' In a moment, that part of the floor on which Dante was resting his hands as he knelt with his head in the opening suddenly gave way. He drew back smartly while a mass of stones and earth disappeared in a hole that opened beneath the aperture he himself had formed. Then from the bottom of this passage, the depth of which it was impossible to measure, he saw appear first the head, then the shoulders, and lastly the body of a man who sprang lightly into his cell. End of chapter 15。Chapter 16 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。Chapter 16 A Learned Italian Seizing in his arms the friend so long and ardently desired, Dante almost carried him towards the window in order to obtain a better view of his features by the aid of the imperfect light that struggled through the grating. He was a man of small stature, with hair blanched rather by suffering and sorrow than by age. He had a deep-set, penetrating eye almost buried beneath the thick grey eyebrow, and a long and still black beard reaching down to his breast. His thin face, deeply furrowed by care, and the bold outline of his strongly marked features, betokened a man more accustomed to exercise his mental faculties than his physical strength. Large drops of perspiration were now standing on his brow, while the garments that hung about him were so ragged 
that one could only guess at the pattern upon which they had originally been fashioned. The stranger might have numbered sixty or sixty-five years, but a certain briskness and appearance of vigour in his movements made it probable that he was aged more from captivity than the course of time. He received the enthusiastic greeting of his young acquaintance with evident pleasure, as though his chilled affections were rekindled and invigorated by his contact with one so warm and ardent. He thanked him with grateful cordiality for his kindly welcome, although he must at that moment have been suffering bitterly to find another dungeon where he had fondly reckoned on discovering a means of regaining his liberty. "'Let us first see,' said he, "'whether it is possible to remove the traces of my entrance here. Our future tranquillity depends upon our jailers being entirely ignorant of it.' Advancing to the opening, he stooped and raised the stone easily, in spite of its weight. Then, fitting it into its place, he said, "'You removed this stone very carelessly, but I suppose that you had no tools to aid you.' "'Why?' exclaimed Dante, with astonishment. "'Do you possess any?' "'I made myself some, and with the exception of a file, I have all that unnecessary.' a chisel, pincers, and a lever. Oh, how I should like to see those products of your industry and patience. Well, in the first place, here is my chisel. So saying, he displayed a sharp, strong blade with a handle made of beechwood. And with what did you contrive to make that? inquired Dante. With one of the clamps of my bedstead and this very tool has sufficed me to hollow out the road by which I came hither, a distance of about fifty feet. Fifty feet, responded Dante, almost terrified. Do not speak so loud, young man. Don't speak so loud. It frequently occurs in a state prison like this that persons are stationed outside of the doors of the cells, purposely to overhear the conversation of the prisoners. But they believe I am shut up alone here. That makes no difference. And you say that you dug your way a distance of fifty feet to get here? I do. That is about the distance that separates your chamber from mine. Only, unfortunately, I did not curve right, for want of the necessary geometrical instruments to calculate my scale of proportion. Instead of taking an ellipsis of forty feet, I made it fifty. I expected, as I told you, to reach the outer wall, pierce through it, and to throw myself into the sea. I have, however, kept along the corridor in which your chamber opens, instead of going beneath it. My labour is all in vain, for I find that the corridor looks into a courtyard filled with soldiers. That's true, said Dante, but the corridor you speak of only bounds one side of my cell. There are three others. Do you know anything of their situation? This one is built against the solid rock, and it would take ten experienced miners, duly furnished with the requisite tools, as many years to perforate it. This adjoins the lower part of the governor's apartments, and were we to work our way through, we should only get into some lock-up cellars where we must necessarily be recaptured. The fourth and last side of your cell faces on, faces on, stop a minute. Now where does it face? 
The wall of which he spoke was the one in which was fixed the loophole by which light was admitted to the chamber. This loophole, which gradually diminished in size as it approached the outside to an opening through which a child could not have passed, was, for better security, furnished with three iron bars, so as to quiet all apprehensions, even in the mind of the most suspicious jailer, as to the possibility of a prisoner's escape. As the stranger asked the question, he dragged the table beneath the window. "'Climb up,' said he to Dante. The young man obeyed, mounted on the table, and, divining the wishes of his companion, placed his back securely against the wall and held out both hands. The stranger, whom as yet Dante knew only by the number of his cell, sprang up with an agility by no means to be expected in a person of his years, and, light and steady on his feet, as a cat or a lizard, climbed from the table to the outstretched hands of Dante, and from them to his shoulders. Then, bending double, for the ceiling of the dungeon prevented him from holding himself erect, he managed to slip his head between the upper bars of the window, so as to be able to command a perfect view from top to bottom. An instant afterwards he hastily drew back his head, saying, I thought so, and sliding from the shoulders of Dante, as dexterously as he had descended, he nimbly leapt from the table to the ground. What was it that you thought? asked the young man anxiously, in his turn descending from the table. The elder prisoner pondered the matter. Yes, said he at length, it is so. This side of your chamber looks out upon a kind of open gallery, where patrols are continually passing, and sentries keep watch day and night. Are you quite sure of that? Certain. I saw the soldier's shape, and the top of his musket. That made me draw in my head so quickly, for I was fearful he might also see me. Well, inquired Dante, you perceive, then, the utter impossibility of escaping through your dungeon. Then, pursued the young man eagerly, then, answered the elder prisoner, the will of God be done. And as the old man slowly pronounced those words, an air of profound resignation spread itself over his careworn countenance. Dante gazed on the man who could thus philosophically resign hopes so long and ardently nourished, with an astonishment mingled with admiration. Tell me, I entreat you, who and what you are, said he at length. Never have I met with so remarkable a person as yourself. Willingly, answered the stranger, if indeed you feel any curiosity respecting one, now alas powerless to aid you in any way. Say not so. You can console and support me by the strength of your own powerful mind. Pray let me know who you really are. The stranger smiled a melancholy smile. Then listen, said he. I am the Abbe Faria, and have been imprisoned, as you know, in this Chateau d'If since the year 1811, previously to which I had been confined for three years in the fortress of Fenestrel. In the year 1811 I was transferred to Piedmont in France. It was at this period I learned that the destiny which seemed subservient to every wish formed by Napoleon had bestowed on him a son, 
named King of Rome even in his cradle. I was very far then from expecting the change you have just informed me of, namely that four years afterwards this colossus of power would be overthrown. Then who reigns in France at this moment? Napoleon II? No, Louis XVIII. The brother of Louis XVII? How inscrutable are the ways of providence! For what great and mysterious purpose has it pleased heaven to abase the man once so elevated and raise up him who was so abased? Dante's whole attention was riveted on a man who could thus forget his own misfortunes while occupying himself with the destinies of others. Yes, yes, continued he, it will be the same as it was in England, after Charles I, Cromwell, after Cromwell, Charles II, and then James II, and then some son-in-law or relation, some prince of Orange, a stadtholder who becomes a king, then new concessions to the people, then a constitution, then liberty. Ah, my friend, said the abbe, turning towards Dante and surveying him with the kindling gaze of a prophet. You are young. You will see all this come to pass. Probably, if ever I get out of prison. True, replied Faria. We are prisoners, but I forget this sometimes, and there are even moments when my mental vision transports me beyond these walls, and I fancy myself at liberty. But wherefore are you here? Because, in 1807, I dreamed of the very plan Napoleon tried to realize in 1811. Because, like Machiavelli, I desired to alter the political face of Italy, and instead of allowing it to be split up into a quantity of petty principalities, each held by some weak or tyrannical ruler, I sought to form one large, compact and powerful empire. And lastly, because I fancied I had found my Caesar Borgia in a crowned simpleton who feigned to enter into my views only to betray me. It was the plan of Alexander VI and Clement VII. But it will never succeed now, for they attempted it fruitlessly, and Napoleon was unable to complete his work. Italy seems fated to misfortune. And the old man bowed his head. Dante could not understand a man risking his life for such matters. Napoleon certainly he knew something of, inasmuch as he had seen and spoken with him. But of Clement the Seventh and Alexander the Sixth, he knew nothing. Are you not, he asked, the priest who here in Chateau d'If is generally thought to be ill? Mad, you mean, don't you? I did not like to say so, answered Dante, smiling. Well, then, resumed Faria with a bitter smile, let me answer your question in full. By acknowledging that I am the poor mad prisoner of the Chateau d'If, for many years permitted to amuse the different visitors with what is said to be my insanity, and in all probability I should be promoted to the honour of making sport for the children, if such innocent beings could be found in an abode devoted like this to suffering and despair. Dante remained for a short time mute and motionless. At length he said, Then you abandon all hope of escape? 
I perceive its utter impossibility, and I consider it impious to attempt that which the Almighty evidently does not approve. Nay, but do not be discouraged. Would it not be expecting too much to hope to succeed at your first attempt? Why not try to find an opening in another direction from that which has so unfortunately failed? Alas, it shows how little notion you can have of all it has cost me to effect a purpose so unexpectedly frustrated that you talk of beginning over again. In the first place, I was four years making the tools I possess, and have been two years scraping and digging out earth hard as granite itself. Then what toil and fatigue has it not been to remove huge stones I should once have deemed impossible to loosen? Whole days have I passed in these titanic efforts, considering my labour well repaid, if by night-time I had contrived to carry away a square inch of this hard-bound cement, changed by ages into a substance unyielding as the stones themselves, then to conceal the mass of earth and rubbish I dug up, I was compelled to break through a staircase and throw the fruits of my labour into the hollow part of it. But the well is now so completely choked up that I scarcely think it would be possible to add another handful of dust without leading to discovery. Consider also that I fully believed I had accomplished the end aim of my undertaking, for which I had so exactly husbanded my strength as to make it just hold out to the termination of my enterprise. And now, at the moment when I reckoned upon success, my hopes and forever dashed from me. No, I repeat again that nothing will induce me to renew attempts evidently at variance with the Almighty's pleasure. Dante held down his head that the other might not see how joy at the thought of having a companion outweighed the sympathy he felt for the failure of the abbe's plans. The abbe sank upon Edmond's bed, while Edmund himself remained standing. Escape had never once occurred to him. There are indeed some things which appear so impossible that the mind does not dwell on them for an instant. To undermine the ground for fifty feet to devote three years to a labour which, if successful, would conduct you to a precipice overhanging the sea, to plunge into the waves from the height of fifty, sixty, perhaps a hundred feet, at the risk of being dashed to pieces against the rocks, should you have been fortunate enough to have escaped the fire of the sentinels, and even, supposing all these perils passed, then to have to swim for your life a distance of at least three miles ere you could reach the shore, were difficulties so startling and formidable that Dante had never even dreamed of such a scheme, resigning himself rather to death. But the sight of an old man clinging to life with so desperate a courage gave a fresh turn to his ideas and inspired him with new courage. Another, older and less strong than he, had attempted what he had not had sufficient resolution to undertake and had failed only because of an error in calculation. This same person, with almost incredible patience and perseverance, had contrived to provide himself with tools requisite for so unparalleled an attempt. Another had done all this. Why, then, was it impossible to Dante? 
Faria had dug his way through fifty feet. Dante would dig a hundred. Faria, at the age of fifty, had devoted three years to the task. He, who was but half as old, would sacrifice six. Faria, a priest and savant, had not shrunk from the idea of risking his life by trying to swim a distance of three miles to one of the islands, Dôme, Ratonneau, or Lumer, should a hardy sailor, an experienced diver like himself, shrink from a similar task? Should he, who had so often, for mere amusement's sake, plunged to the bottom of the sea to fetch up the bright coral branch, hesitate to entertain the same project? He could do it in an hour. And how many times had he, for pure pastime, continued in the water for more than twice as long? At once, Dante resolved to follow the brave example of his energetic companion, and to remember that what has once been done may be done again. After continuing some time in profound meditation, the young man suddenly exclaimed, I have found what you are in search of. Faria started. Have you indeed? cried he, raising his head with quick anxiety. Pray, let me know what it is you have discovered. The corridor through which you have bored your way from the cell you occupy here extends in the same direction as the outer gallery, does it not? It does, and is not above fifteen feet from it. About that. Well, then, I will tell you what we must do. We must pierce through the corridor by forming a side opening about the middle, as it were the top part of a cross. This time you will lay your plans more accurately. We shall get out into the gallery you have described, kill the sentinel who guards it, and make our escape. All we require to ensure success is courage, and that you possess, and strength which I am not deficient in. As for patience, you have abundantly proved yours. You shall now see me prove mine. One instant, my dear friend, replied the abbe. It is clear you do not understand the nature of the courage with which I am endowed, and what use I intend making of my strength. As for patience, I consider that I have abundantly exercised that in beginning every morning the task of the night before, and every night renewing the task of the day. But then a young man, and I pray of you to give me your full attention, then I thought I could not be doing anything displeasing to the Almighty in trying to set an innocent being at liberty, one who had committed no offence and merited not condemnation. And have your notions changed? asked Dante with much surprise. Do you think yourself more guilty in making the attempt since you have encountered me? No, neither do I wish to incur guilt. Hitherto I have fancied myself merely waging war against circumstances, not men. I have thought it no sin to bore through a wall or destroy a staircase, but I cannot so easily persuade myself to pierce a heart or take away a life. A slight movement of surprise escaped Dante. Is it possible, said he, that where your liberty is at stake, you can allow any such scruple to deter you from obtaining it? Tell me, replied Faria, what has hindered you from knocking down your jailer with a piece of wood torn from your bedstead, dressing yourself in his clothes, and endeavouring to escape? 
simply the fact that the idea never occurred to me, answered Dante. Because, said the old man, the natural repugnance to the commission of such a crime prevented you from thinking of it. And so it ever is, because in simple and allowable things our natural instincts keep us from deviating from the strict line of duty. The tiger, whose nature teaches him to delight in shedding blood, needs but the sense of smell to show him when his prey is within his reach, and by following this instinct he is enabled to measure the leap necessary to permit him to spring on his victim. But man, on the contrary, loathes the idea of blood. It is not alone that the laws of social life inspire him with a shrinking dread of taking life, his natural construction and physiological formation. Dante was confused and silent at this explanation of the thoughts which had unconsciously been working in his mind, or rather soul, for there are two distinct sorts of ideas, those that proceed from the head and those that emanate from the heart. Since my imprisonment, said Faria, I have thought over all the most celebrated cases of escape on record. They have rarely been a successful. Those that have been crowned with full success have been long meditated upon and carefully arranged. Such, for instance, as the escape of the Duke de Beaufort from the Chateau de Vincennes, that of the Abbe de Beauquois from Fort Levesque, of Latude from the Bastille. Then there are those for which chance sometimes affords the opportunity, and those are the best of all. Let us therefore wait patiently for some favourable moment, and when it presents itself, profit by it. Ah, said Dante, you might well endure the tedious delay. You are constantly employed in the task you set yourself, and when weary with toil, you had your hopes to refresh and encourage you. I assure you, replied the old man, I did not turn to that source for recreation or support. What did you do then? I wrote or studied. Were you then permitted the use of pens, ink and paper? Oh, no, answered the abbe. I had none but what I made for myself. You made paper, pens and ink? Yes. Dante gazed with admiration, but he had some difficulty in believing. Faria saw this. When you pay me a visit in my cell, my young friend, said he, I will show you an entire work, the fruits of the thoughts and the reflections of my whole life. Many of them meditated over in the shades of the Colosseum at Rome, at the foot of St. Mark's Column at Venice, and on the borders of the Arno at Florence little imagining at the time that they would be arranged in order within the walls of the Chateau d'If. The work I speak of is called A Treatise on the Possibility of a General Monarchy in Italy, and will make one large quarto volume. And on what have you written all this? On two of my shirts. I invented a preparation that makes linen as smooth and as easy to write on as parchment. You are then a chemist? Somewhat. I know Lavoisier, and was the intimate friend of Cabani. But for such a work you must have needed books. Had you any? 
I had nearly 5,000 volumes in my library at Rome, but after reading them over many times, I found out that with 150 well-chosen books, a man possesses, if not a complete summary of all human knowledge, at least all that a man need really know. I devoted three years of my life to reading and studying these 150 volumes till I knew them nearly by heart, so that since I have been in prison, a very slight effort of memory has enabled me to recall their contents as readily as though the pages were open before me. I could recite you the whole of Thucydides, Xenophon, Plutarch, Titus, Livius, Tacitus, Strada, Jonandes, Dante, Montaigne, Shakespeare, Spinoza, Machiavelli, and Bousset. I name only the most important. You are doubtless acquainted with a variety of languages, so as to have been able to read all these. Yes, I speak five of the modern tongues, that is to say, German, French, Italian, English, and Spanish. By the aid of ancient Greek, I learned modern Greek. I don't speak it so well as I could wish, but I am still trying to improve myself. Improve yourself, repeated Dante. Why, how can you manage to do so? Why, I made a vocabulary of the words I knew, turned, returned, and arranged them, so as to enable me to express my thoughts through their medium. I know nearly one thousand words, which is all that is absolutely necessary, although I believe there are nearly one hundred thousand in the dictionaries. I cannot hope to be very fluent, but I certainly should have no difficulty in explaining my wants and wishes, and that would be quite as much as I should ever require. Stronger grew the wonder of Dante, who almost fancied it had to do with one gifted with supernatural powers still hoping to find some imperfection which might bring him down to a level with human beings, he added, Then, if you were not furnished with pens, how did you manage to write the word you speak of? I made some excellent ones, which would be universally preferred to all others if once known. You are aware what huge whitings are served us on maigre days. Well, I selected the cartilages of the heads of these fishes, and you can scarcely imagine the delight with which I welcome the arrival of each Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, as affording me the means of increasing my stock of pens. For I will freely confess that my historical labours have been my greatest solace and relief. While retracing the past, I forgot the present, and traversing at will the path of history, I cease to remember that I am myself a prisoner." But the ink, said Dante, of what did you make your ink? There was formerly a fireplace in my dungeon, replied Faria, but it was closed up long ere I became an occupant of this prison. Still, it must have been many years in use, for it was thickly covered with a coating of soot. This soot I dissolved in a portion of the wine brought to me every Sunday, and I assure you, a better ink cannot be desired, for very important notes for which closer attention is required, I pricked one of my fingers and wrote with my own blood. And when? asked Dante. May I see all this? Whenever you please, replied the abbe. 
Oh, then let it me directly, exclaimed the young man. Oh, follow me, then, said the abbe, as he re-entered the subterranean passage, in which he soon disappeared, followed by Dante. End of chapter 16《ハッタ17の Count of Monte Cristo》by Alexandre Dumas。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。Chapter 17: The Abbé's Chamber。After having passed with tolerable ease through the subterranean passage, which, however, did not admit of their holding themselves erect, the two friends reached the further end of the corridor, into which the abbé's cell opened. From that point. The passage became much narrower, and barely permitted one to creep through on hands and knees. The floor of the abbe's cell was paved, and it had been by raising one of the stones in the most obscure corner that Faria had to be enabled to commence the laborious task of which Dante had witnessed the completion. As he entered the chamber of his friend, Dante cast around one eager and searching glance in quest of the expected marvels. But nothing more than common met his view. It is well, said the abbe. We have some hours before us. It is now just a quarter past twelve o'clock. Instinctively, Dante turned round to observe by what watch or clock the abbe had been able so accurately to specify the hour. Look at this ray of light which enters by my window, said the abbe, and then observe the lines are traced on the wall. Well, by means of these lines, which are in accordance with the double motion of the Earth, and the ellipse it describes around the Sun, I am enabled to ascertain the precise hour with more minuteness than if I possessed a watch, for that might be broken or deranged in its movements, while the Sun and the Earth never vary in their appointed paths. This last explanation was wholly lost upon Dante, who had always imagined from seeing the Sun rise from behind the mountains. And set in the Mediterranean, that it moved, and not the Earth, a double movement of the globe he inhabited, and of which he could feel nothing, appeared to him perfectly impossible. Each word that fell from his companion's lips seemed fraught with the mysteries of science, as worthy of digging out as of the gold and diamonds in the mines of Guzarat and Golconda, which he could just recollect having visited during a voyage made in his earliest youth. Come. Said he to the abbe, "I am anxious to see your treasures." The abbe smiled and, proceeding to the disused fireplace, raised by the help of his chisel a long stone, which had doubtless been the hearth, beneath which was a cavity of considerable depth, serving as a safe depository of the articles mentioned to Dante. "What do you wish to see first?" asked the abbe. "Oh, your great work on the monarchy of Italy." Faria then drew forth from his hiding place three or four rolls of linen, laid one over the other like folds of papyrus. These rolls consisted of slips of cloth about four inches wide and eighteen long. They were all carefully numbered, and closely covered with writing, so legible that Dante could easily read it, as well as make out the sense. It being in, in Italian, a language he, as a Provençal, perfectly understood. There said he. There is the work complete. I wrote the word Phoenix at the end of the sixty-eighth strip about a week ago. I have torn up two of my shirts, 
and as many handkerchiefs as I was master of, to complete the precious pages. Should I ever get out of prison and find in all Italy a printer courageous enough to publish what I have composed, my literary reputation is forever secured. I see, answered Dante. Now let me behold the curious pens with which you have written your work. Look, said Faria, showing to the young man a slender stick about six inches long, and much resembling the size of the handle of a fine painting brush, to the end of which was tied, by a piece of thread, one of those cartilages of which the abbe had before spoken to Dante. It was pointed, and divided at the nib like an ordinary pen. Dante examined it with intense admiration, then looked around to see the instrument with which it had been shaped so correctly into form. Ah, yes, said Faria. The penknife, that's my masterpiece. I made it as well, this larger knife, out of an old iron candlestick. The penknife was sharp and keen as a razor. As for the other knife, it would serve a double purpose, and with it one cut and thrust. Dante examined the various articles shown to him with the same attention that he had bestowed on the curiosities and strange tools exhibited in the shops at Marseille as the works of the savages in the South Seas from whence they had been brought by the different trading vessels. As for the ink, said Faria, I told you I managed to obtain that, and I only just made it from time to time as I require it. One thing still puzzles me, observed Dante, and that is how you managed to do all this by daylight. I worked at night also, replied Faria. Night? Why, for heaven's sake, are your eyes like cats? that you can see to work in the dark? Indeed they are not, but God has supplied a man with the intelligence that enables him to overcome the limitations of natural conditions. I furnish myself with a light. You did? Pray, tell me how. I separated the fat from the meat served to me, melted it, and so made oil. Here is my lamp. So saying, the abbe exhibited a sort of torch, very similar to those used in public illuminations. But a light. Here are two flints and a piece of burnt linen. And matches? I pretended that I had a disorder of the skin, and asked for a little sulphur, which was readily supplied. Dante laid the different things he had been looking at on the table, and stood with his head drooping on his breast as though overwhelmed by the perseverance and strength of Faria's mind. "'You have not seen all yet,' continued Faria, "'for I do not think it wise to trust all my treasures in the same hiding-place. Let us shut this one up.' They put the stone back in its place, the abbe sprinkled a little dust over it to conceal the traces of its having been removed, rubbed his foot well on it to make it assume the same appearance as the other, and then... Going towards his bed, he removed it from the spot it stood in. Behind the head of the bed, and concealed by a stone fitting in so closely as to defy all suspicion, was a hollow space, and in this space a ladder of cords between twenty-five and thirty-eight feet in length. Dante closely and eagerly examined it. He found it firm, solid, and compact enough to bear any weight. Who supplied you with the materials for making this wonderful work? I tore up several of my shirts and ripped out the seams in the seats of my bed 
during my three years' imprisonment at Fenestrel, and when I was removed to the Chateau d'If, I managed to bring the ravelings with me so that I had been able to finish my work here. And was it not discovered that your sheets were unhemmed? Oh, no, for when I had taken out the thread I required, I hemmed the edges over again. With what? With this needle, said the abbe. As opening his ragged vestments, he showed Dante a long, sharp fishbone with a small perforated eye for the thread, a small portion of which still remained in it. I once thought, continued Faria, of removing these iron bars and letting myself down from the window, which, as you see, is somewhat wider than yours, although I should have enlarged it still more preparatory to my flight. However, I discovered that I should merely have dropped into a sort of inner court, and I therefore renounced the project altogether as too full of risk and danger. Nevertheless, I carefully preserved my ladder against one of those unforeseen opportunities of which I spoke just now, and which sudden chance frequently brings about. While affecting to be deeply engaged in examining the ladder, the mind of Dante was in fact busily occupied by the idea that a person so intelligent, ingenious and clear-sighted as the abbe might probably be able to solve the dark mystery of his own misfortunes, where he himself could see nothing. "'What are you thinking of?' asked the abbe smilingly, imputing the deep abstraction in which his visitor was plunged to the excess of his awe and wonder. "'I was reflecting in the first place,' replied Dante, "'upon the enormous degree of intelligence and ability you must have employed to reach the high perfection to which you have attained. What would you not have accomplished if you had been free? Possibly nothing at all. The overflow of my brain would probably, in a state of freedom, have evaporated in a thousand follies. Misfortune is needed to bring to light the treasures of the human intellect. Compression is needed to explode a gunpowder. Captivity has brought my mental faculties to a focus and you are well aware that from the collision of clouds electricity is produced, from electricity lightning, from lightning illumination. No, replied Dante, I know nothing. Some of your words are to me quite empty of meaning. You must be blessed indeed to possess the knowledge you have. The abbe smiled. Well, said he, but you had another subject for your thoughts. Did you not say so just now? I did. You have told me as yet but one of them. Let me hear the other. It was this, that while you had related to me all the particulars of your past life, you were perfectly unacquainted with mine. Your life, my younger friend, has not been of sufficient length to admit of your having passed through any very important events. It has been long enough to inflict on me a great and undeserved misfortune. I would fain fix the source of it on man that I may no longer vent reproaches upon heaven. Then you profess ignorance of the crime with which you are charged. I do indeed, and this I swear by the two beings most dear to me upon earth, my father and Mercedes. Come! said the abbé, closing his hiding-place and pushing the bed back to its original situation. Let me hear your story. 
Dante obeyed and commenced what he called his history, but which consisted only of the account of a voyage to India and two or three voyages to the Levant, until he arrived at the recital of his last cruise, with the death of Captain Leclerc and the receipt of a packet to be delivered by himself to the Grand Marshal. His interview with that personage, and his receiving, in place of the packet brought, a letter addressed to a Monsieur Noirtier, his arrival at Marseille and interview with his father, his affection for Mercedes and their nuptial feast, his arrest and subsequent examination, his temporary detention at the Palais de Justice, and his final imprisonment in the Chateau d'If. From this point everything was a blank to Dante. He knew nothing more, not even the length of time he had been imprisoned. His recital finished, the abbe reflected long and earnestly. There is, said he at the end of his meditations, a clever maxim which bears upon what I was saying to you some little while ago, and that is that unless wicked ideas take root in a naturally depraved mind, human nature in a right and wholesome state revolts at crime. Still, from an artificial civilization have originated once vices and false tastes, which occasionally become so powerful as to stifle within us all good feelings, and ultimately to lead us into guilt and wickedness. From this view of things, then comes the axiom that if you visit to discover the author of any bad action, seek first to discover the person to whom the perpetration of that bad action could be in any way advantageous. And now to apply it in your case, to whom could your disappearance have been serviceable? To no one, by heaven. I was a very insignificant person. Do not speak thus, for your reply evinces neither logic nor philosophy. Everything is relative, my dear young friend, from the king who stands in the way of his successor to the employee who keeps his rival out of a place. Now, in the event of the king's death, his successor inherits a crown. When the employee dies, the supernumerary steps into his shoes and receives his salary of 12,000 livres. Well, these 12,000 livres are his civil list, and are as essential to him as the 12 millions of a king. Every one, from the highest to the lowest degree, has his place on the social ladder, and is beset by stormy passions and conflicting interests, as in Descartes' theory of pressure and impulsion. But these forces increase as we go higher, so that we have a spiral which, in defiance of reason, rests upon the apex and not on the base. Now let us return to your particular world. You say you were on the point of being made a captain of the Pharaoh. Yes. And about to become the husband of a young and lovely girl. Yes. Now, could anyone have had any interest in preventing the accomplishment of these two things? But let us first settle the question as to its being the interest of anyone to hinder you from being captain of the Pharaoh. What say you? I cannot believe such was the case. I was generally liked on board, and had the sailors possessed the right of selecting a captain themselves, I feel convinced their choice would have fallen on me. There was only one person among the crew who had any feeling of ill-will towards me. I had quarrelled with him some time previously, and had even challenged him to fight me, but he refused. Now we are getting on, 
And what was this man's name? Donglar. What rank did he hold on board? He was supercargo. And had you been a captain, should you have retained him in his employment? Not if the choice had remained with me, for I had frequently observed inaccuracies in his accounts. Good again. Now then tell me, was any person present during your last conversation with Captain Leclerc? No, we were quite alone. Could your conversation have been overheard by anyone? It might, for the cabin door was open. And stay, now, I recollect. Donglar himself passed by just as Captain Leclerc was giving me the packet for the Grand Marshal. That's a better, cried the abbe. Now we are on the right ascent. Did you take anybody with you when you put into the port of Elba? Nobody. Somebody there received your packet, and gave you a letter in place of it, I think. Yes, the Grand Marshal did. And what did you do with that letter? Put it into my portfolio. You had your portfolio with you, then. Now, how could a sailor find room in his pocket for a portfolio large enough to contain an official letter? You are right. It was left on board. Then it was not until your return to the ship that you put the letter in the portfolio. No. And what did you do with this same letter while returning from the Porto Ferraio to the vessel? I carried it in my hand. So that when you went on board the Pharaoh, everybody could see that you held a letter in your hand. Yes. Donglar as well as the rest. Donglar as well as others. Now listen to me, and try to recall every circumstance attending your arrest. Do you recollect the words in which the information against you was formulated? Oh yes, I read it over three times, and the words sank deeply into my memory. Repeat it to me. Dante paused a moment, then said, This is it, word for word. The king's attorney is informed by a friend to the throne and religion that one Edmond Dante, mate on board the Pharaoh, this day arrived from Smyrna, after having touched at Naples and Porto Ferraio, has been entrusted by Murat with a packet for the usurper, again by the usurper, with a letter for the Bonapartist club in Paris. This proof of his guilt may be procured by his immediate arrest as the letter will be found either about his person, at his father's residence, or in his cabin on board the Ferroin. The abbe shrugged his shoulders. The thing is clear as day, said he, and you must have had a very confiding nature, as well as a good heart, not to have suspected the origin of the whole affair. Do you really think so? Ah, that would indeed be infamous. How did Donglar usually write? in a handsome running hand. And how was the anonymous letter written? Backhanded. Again, the abbe smiled. Disguised? It was very boldly written, if disguised. Stop a bit, said the abbe, taking up what he called his pen, and after dipping it into the ink, he wrote on a piece of prepared linen with his left hand the first two or three words of the accusation. 
Dante drew back and gazed on the abbe with sensation almost amounting to terror. How very astonishing, cried he at length. Why, your writing exactly resembles that of the accusation. Simply because of that accusation had been written with the left hand, and I have noticed that... What? That while the writing of different persons done with the right hand varies, that performed with the left hand is invariably uniform. You have evidently seen and observed everything. Let us proceed. Oh, yes, yes. Now, as regards the second question, I am listening. Was there any person whose interest it was to prevent your marriage with Mercedes? Yes, a young man who loved her. And his name was? Fernand. This is a Spanish name, I think. He was a Catalan. You imagine him capable of writing the letter? Oh, no, you would more likely have got rid of me by sticking a knife into me. That is in a strict accordance with the Spanish character. An assassination they will unhesitatingly commit, but an act of cowardice, never. Besides, said Dante, the various circumstances mentioned in the letter were wholly unknown to him. You had never spoken of them yourself to anyone? To no one. Not even to your mistress? No, not even to my betrothed. Then it is a donglar. I feel quite sure of it now. Wait a little. Pray, was Danglar acquainted with Fernand? No. Yes, he was. Now I recollect. What? Do I've seen them both sitting at the table, together under an arbor, at Père Pomphile's, the evening before the day fixed for my wedding. They were in earnest conversation. Danglar was joking in a friendly way, but Fernand looked pale and agitated. Were they alone? There was a third person with them, whom I knew perfectly well, and who had in all probability made their acquaintance. He was a tailor named Caderousse, but he was very drunk. Stay, stay, how strange, that it should not have occurred to me before. Now I remember quite well that on the table round which they were sitting were pens, ink, and paper. Oh, the heartless, treacherous scoundrels! exclaimed Dante, pressing his hand to his throbbing brows. Is there anything else I can assist you in discovering besides the villainy of your friends? inquired the abbe with a laugh. Yes, yes, replied Dante eagerly. I would beg of you, who see so completely to the depths of things, and to whom the greatest mystery seems but an easy riddle, to explain to me how it was that I underwent no second examination, was never brought to trial, and, above all, was condemned without ever having had sentence passed on me. That is altogether a different and more serious matter, responded the abbe. The ways of justice are frequently too dark and mysterious to be easily penetrated. All we have hitherto done in the matter has been child's play, if you wish me to enter upon the more difficult part of the business, you must assist me by the most minute information on every point. Pray ask me whatever question you please, for in good truth you see more clearly into my life than I do myself. In the first place, 
Then who examined you? The king's attorney, his deputy, or a magistrate? The deputy. Was he young or old? About six or seven and twenty years of age, I should say. So, answered the abbe, old enough to be ambitious, but too young to be corrupt. And how did he treat you? With more of mildness than severity. Did you tell him your whole story? I did. And did his conduct change at all in the course of your examination? He did appear much disturbed when he read the letter that had brought me into this scrape. He seemed quite overcome by my misfortune. By your misfortune? Yes. Then you feel quite sure that it was the misfortune he deplored. He gave me one great proof of his sympathy at any rate. And that? He burnt the sole evidence that could at all have criminated me. What? The accusation? No, the letter. Are you sure? I saw it done. That alters the case. This man might, after all, be a great scoundrel than you have thought possible. Upon my word, said Dante, you make me shudder. Is the world filled with tigers and crocodiles? Yes, and remember that two-legged tigers and crocodiles are more dangerous than the others. Never mind. Let us go on. With all of my heart, you tell me he burned the letter. He did, saying at the same time, You see, I thus destroy the only proof existing against you. This action is somewhat too sublime to be natural. You think so? I am sure of it. To whom was this letter addressed? To Monsieur Noirtier, numero 13, Coqueron, Paris. Now can you conceive of any interest that your heroic deputy could possibly have had in the destruction of that letter? Why, it is not altogether impossible. He might have had, for he made me promise several times never to speak of that letter to anyone, assuring me he so advised me for my own interest. And more than this, he insisted on my taking a solemn oath never to utter the name mentioned in the address. Noirtier, repeated the abbe. Noirtier. I knew a person of that name at the court of the Queen of Etteria. A Noirtier, who had been a Girondin during the Revolution. What was your deputy called? De Villefort. The abbe burst into a fit of laughter, while Dante gazed on him in utter astonishment. What ails you? said he at length. Do you see that array of sunlight? I do. Well, the whole thing is more clear to me than that sunbeam is to you. Poor fellow, poor young man. And you tell me this magistrate expressed great sympathy and commiseration for you. He did. And the worthy man destroyed your compromising letter. Yes. And then made you swear never to utter the name of Noirtier. Yes. Why, you poor short-sighted simpleton, can you not guess who this Noirtier was, whose very name he was so careful to keep concealed? Noirtier was his father. Had a thunderbolt fallen at the feet of Dante, or hell opened its yawning gulf before him, 
He could not have been more completely transfixed with horror than he was at the sound of these unexpected words. Starting up, he clasped his hands around his head as though to prevent his very brain from bursting, and exclaimed, His father? His father? Yes, his father, replied the abbe. His right name was Noirtier de Villefort. At this instant, a bright light shot through the mind of Dante and cleared up all that had been dark and obscure before. The change that had come over Villefort during the examination, the destruction of the letter, the exacted promise, the almost supplicating tones of the magistrate who seemed rather to implore mercy than to pronounce punishment, all returned with a stunning force to his memory. He cried out and staggered against the wall like a drunken man. Then he hurried to the opening that led from the abbe's cell to his own and said, I must be alone to think over all this. When he regained his dungeon, he threw himself on his bed, where the turnkey found him in the evening visit, sitting with fixed gaze and contracted features, dumb and motionless as a statue. During these hours of profound meditation, which to him had seemed only minutes, he had formed a fearful resolution and bound himself to its fulfilment by a solemn oath. Dante was at length roused from his reverie by the voice of Faria, who, having also been visited by his jailer, had come to invite his fellow sufferer to share his supper. The reputation of being out of his mind, though harmlessly and even amusingly so, had procured for the abbe unusual privileges. He was supplied with bread of a finer, whiter quality than the usual prison fare, and even regaled each Sunday with a small quantity of wine. Now this was a Sunday, and the abbe had come to ask his young companion to share the luxuries with him. Dante followed. His features were no longer contracted, and now wore their usual expression. But there was that in his whole appearance that bespoke one who had come to a fixed and desperate resolve. Faria bent on him his penetrating eye. I regret now, said he, having helped you in your late inquiries, or having given you the information I did. Why so? inquired Dante. Because it has instilled a new passion in your heart, that of vengeance. Dante smiled. Let us talk of something else, said he. Again, the abbe looked at him then mournfully shook his head, but in accordance with Dante's request, he began to speak of other matters. The elder prisoner was one of those persons whose conversation, like that of all who had experienced many trials, contained many useful and important hints, as well as sound information. But it was never egotistical, for that unfortunate man never alluded to his own sorrows. Dante listened with admiring attention to all he said, some of his remarks corresponded with what he already knew, or applied to the sort of knowledge his nautical life had enabled him to acquire. A part of the good abbe's words, however, were wholly incomprehensible to him, but like the aurora which guides the navigator in northern latitudes, opened new vistas to the inquiring mind of the listener, and gave fantastic glimpses of new horizons enabling him justly to estimate the delight an intellectual mind would have in following one so richly gifted as Faria along the heights of truth, where he was so much at home. 
You must teach me a small part of what you know, said Dante, if only to prevent your growing weary of me. I can well believe that so learned a person as yourself would prefer absolute solitude to being tormented with the company of one as ignorant and uninformed as myself. If you will only agree to my request, I promise you never to mention another word about escaping. The abbe smiled. Alas, my boy, said he, human knowledge is confined within very narrow limits, and when I have taught you mathematics, physics, history, and the three or four modern languages with which I am acquainted, you will know as much as I do myself. Now it will scarcely require two years for me to communicate to you the stock of learning I possess. Two years? exclaimed Dante. Do you really believe I can acquire all these things in so short a time? Not their application, certainly, but their principles you may. To learn is not to know. There are the learners and the learned. Memory makes the one, philosophy the other. But cannot one learn philosophy? Philosophy cannot be a taught. It is the application of the sciences to truth. It is like the golden cloud in which the Messiah went up into heaven. Well then, said Dante, what shall you teach me first? I am in a hurry to begin. I want to learn. Everything, said the abbe. And that very evening, the prisoners sketched a plan of education to be entered upon the following day. Dante possessed a prodigious memory, combined with an astonishing quickness and readiness of conception. The mathematical turn of his mind rendered him apt at all kinds of calculation, while his naturally poetical feelings threw a light and pleasing veil over the dry reality of arithmetical computation, or the rigid severity of geometry. He already knew Italian, and had also picked up a little of the Romaic dialect during voyages to the east, and by the aid of these two languages he easily comprehended the construction of all the others, so that at the end of six months he began to speak Spanish, English, and German. In strict accordance with the promise made to the abbe, Dante spoke no more of escape. Perhaps the delight his studies afforded him left no room for such thoughts, Perhaps the recollection that he had pledged his word, on which his sense of honour was keen, kept him from referring in any way to the possibilities of flight. Days, even months, passed by unheeded in one rapid and instructive course. At the end of a year, Dante was a new man. Dante observed, however, that Faria, in spite of the relief his society afforded, daily grew sadder. One thought seemed incessantly to harass and distract his mind. Sometimes he would fall into long reverie, sigh heavily and involuntarily, then suddenly rise, and with folded arms begin pacing the confined space of his dungeon. One day he stopped all at once and exclaimed, Ah, if there were no sentinel, there shall not be one a minute longer than you please, said Dante who had followed the working of his thoughts as accurately as though his brain were enclosed in crystal so clear as to display its minutest operations. I have already told you, answered the abbe, that I loathe the idea of shedding blood. And yet the murder, if you choose to call it so, 
would be simply a measure of self-preservation. No matter. I could never agree to it. Still, you have thought of it. Incessantly, alas, cried the abbe. And you have discovered a means of regaining our freedom, have you not? asked Dante eagerly. I have, if it were only possible, to place a deaf and blind sentinel in the gallery beyond us. He shall be both blind and deaf, replied the young man, with an air of determination that made his companion shudder. No, no, cried the abbe. Impossible, Dante endeavoured to renew the subject. The abbe shook his head in token of disapproval and refused to make any further response. Three months passed away. Are you strong? the abbe asked one day of Dante. The young man in reply took up the chisel, bent it into the form of a horseshoe, and then as readily straightened it. And you will engage not to do any harm to the sentry, except as a last resort? I promise, on my honour. Then, said the abbe, we may hope to put our design into execution. And how long shall we be in accomplishing the unnecessary work? At least a year. And shall we begin at once? At once. We have lost a year to no purpose, cried Dante. Do you consider the last twelve months to have been wasted? asked the abbe. Forgive me, cried Edmund, blushing deeply. Tut, tut, answered the abbe. Man is but a man after all, and you are about the best specimen of the genus I have ever known. Come, let me show you my plan. The abbe then showed Dante the sketch he had made for their escape. It consisted of a plan of his own cell and that of Dante with the passage which united them. In this passage he proposed to drive a level as they do in mines. This level would bring the two prisoners immediately beneath the gallery where the sentry kept watch. Once there a large excavation would be made and one of the flagstones with which the gallery was paved be so completely loosened that at the desired moment it would give way beneath the feet of the soldier who, stunned by his fall, would be immediately bound and gagged by Dante before he had power to offer any resistance. The prisoners were then to make their way through one of the gallery windows and to let themselves down from the outer walls by means of the abbe's ladder of cords. Dante's eyes sparkled with joy and he rubbed his hands with delight at the idea of a plan so simple yet apparently so certain to succeed. That very day the miners began their labours with a vigour and alacrity proportional to their long rest from fatigue and their hopes of ultimate success. Nothing interrupted the progress of the work, except the necessity that each was under of returning to his cell in anticipation of the turnkey's visits. They had learned to distinguish the almost imperceptible sound of his footsteps as he descended towards their dungeons, and happily never failed of being prepared for his coming. The fresh earth excavated during their present work, and which would have entirely blocked up the old passage, was thrown by degrees and with the utmost precaution out of the window in either Faria's or Dante's cell, the rubbish being first pulverised so finely that the night wind carried it far away without permitting the smallest trace to remain. More than a year had been consumed in this undertaking, the only tools for which had been a chisel, 
a knife and a wooden lever. Faria still continued to instruct Dante by conversing with him, sometimes in one language, sometimes in another, at others relating to him the history of nations and great men who from time to time have risen to fame and trodden the path of glory. The abbe was a man of the world and had, moreover, mixed in the first society of the day. He wore an air of melancholy dignity which Dante, thanks to the imitative powers bestowed on him by nature, easily acquired, as well as that outward polish and politeness he had before been wanting in, and which is seldom possessed except by those who have been placed in constant intercourse with persons of high birth and breeding. At the end of fifteen months the level was finished, and the excavation completed beneath the gallery, and the two workmen could distinctly hear the measured tread of the sentinel as he paced to and fro over their heads. Compelled as they were to await a night sufficiently dark to favour their flight, they were obliged to defer their final attempt till that auspicious moment should arrive. Their greatest dread now was lest the stone through which the sentry was doomed to fall should give way before its right time. And this they had in some measure provided against by propping it up with a small beam which they had discovered in the walls through which they had worked their way. Dante was occupied in arranging this piece of wood when he heard Faria, who had remained in Edmond's cell for the purpose of cutting a peg to secure their rope ladder, call to him in a tone indicative of great suffering. Dante hastened to his dungeon, where he found him standing in the middle of the room, pale as death, his forehead streaming with perspiration, and his hands clinched tightly together. "'Gracious heavens!' exclaimed Dante. "'What is the matter?' What has happened? Quick, quick, returned the abbe. Listen to what I have to say. Dante looked in fear and wonder at the livid countenance of Faria, whose eyes, already dull and sunken, were surrounded by purple circles, while his lips were white as those of a corpse, and his very hair seemed to stand on end. Tell me, I beseech you, what ails you? cried Dante, letting his chisel fall to the floor. Alas, faltered the abbe, all is over with me. I am seized with a terrible, perhaps mortal illness. I can feel that the paroxysm is fast approaching. I had a similar attack the year previous to my imprisonment. This malady admits but of one remedy. I will tell you what it is. Go into my cell as quickly as you can. Draw out one of the feet that support the bed. You will find it has been hollowed out for the purpose of containing a small file. You will see there are filled with a red-looking fluid. Bring it to me. Or rather, no, no, I may be found here. Therefore, help me back to my room while I have the strength to drag myself along. Who knows what may happen, or how long the attack may last. In spite of the magnitude of the misfortune which thus suddenly frustrated his hopes, Dante did not lose his presence of mind, but descended into the passage, dragging his unfortunate companion with him. Then, half carrying, half supporting him, he managed to reach the abbe's chamber, when he immediately laid the sufferer on his bed. "'Thanks,' said the poor abbe, shivering as though his veins were filled with ice. "'I am about to be seized with a fit of catalepsy.' When it comes to its height, 
I shall probably lie still and motionless as though dead, uttering neither sigh nor groan. On the other hand, the symptoms may be much more violent and cause me to fall into fearful convulsions, foam at the mouth and cry out loudly. Take care my cries are not heard, for if they are it is more than probable I shall be removed to another part of the prison and we be separated for ever. When I become quite motionless, cold, and rigid as a corpse, then, and not before, be careful about this, force open my teeth with the knife, pour from eight to ten drops of the liquor contained in the phial down my throat, and I may perhaps revive. Perhaps, exclaimed Dante in grief-stricken tones, help, help, cried the abbe, I, I die. So sudden and violent was the fit that the unfortunate prisoner was unable to complete the sentence. A violent convulsion shook his whole frame. His eyes started from their sockets. His mouth was drawn on one side. His cheeks became purple. He struggled, foamed, dashed himself about and uttered the most dreadful cries, which, however, Dante prevented from being heard by covering his head with the blanket. The fit lasted two hours. Then, more helpless than an infant, and colder and paler than marble, more crushed and broken than a reed trampled underfoot, he fell back, doubled up in one last convulsion, and became as rigid as a corpse. Edmond waited till life seemed extinct in the body of his friend. Then, taking up the knife, he with difficulty forced open the closely fixed jaws, carefully administered the appointed number of drops, and anxiously awaited the result. An hour passed away, and the old man gave no sign of returning animation. Dante began to fear he had delayed too long ere he had administered the remedy, and thrusting his hands into his hair, continued gazing on the lifeless features of his friend. At length, a slight colour, or tinged livid cheeks, consciousness returned to the dull, open eyeballs, a faint sigh issued from the lips and the sufferer made a feeble effort to move. "'He is saved! He is saved!' cried Dante in a paroxysm of delight. The sick man was not yet able to speak, but he pointed with evident anxiety towards the door. Dante listened and plainly distinguished the approaching steps of the jailer. It was therefore near seven o'clock, but Edmond's anxiety had put all thoughts of time out of his head. The young man sprang to the entrance, darted through it, carefully drawing the stone over the opening, and hurried to his cell. He had scarcely done so before the door opened, and the jailer saw the prisoner seated as usual on the side of his bed. Almost before the key had turned in the lock, and before the departing steps of the jailer had died away in the long corridor, he had to traverse Dante, whose restless anxiety concerning his friend left him no desire to touch the food brought to him, hurried back to the abbe's chamber, and raising the stone by pressing his head against it, was soon beside the sick man's couch. Faria had now fully regained his consciousness, but he still lay helpless and exhausted. I did not expect to see you again, said he feebly to Dante. And why not? asked the young man. Did you fancy yourself dying? No, I had no such idea. But knowing that all was ready for flight, I thought you might have made your escape. The deep glow of indignation suffused the cheeks of Dante. Without you? 
Did you really think me capable of that? At least, said the abbe, I now see how wrong such an opinion would have been. Alas, alas, I am fearfully exhausted and debilitated by this attack. Be of good cheer, replied Dante. Your strength will return. And as he spoke, he seated himself near the bed beside Faria and took his hands. The abbe shook his head. The last attack I had, said he, lasted but half an hour, and after it I was hungry and got up without help. Now I can move neither my right arm nor leg, and my head seems uncomfortable, which shows that there has been a suffusion of blood on the brain. The third attack will either carry me off or leave me paralyzed for life. No, no, cried Dante, you are mistaken. You will not die, and your third attack, if indeed you should have another, will find you at liberty. We shall save you another time, as we have done this, only with a better chance of success, because we shall be able to command every requisite assistance. My good Edmond, answered the abbe, be not deceived. The attack which has just passed away condemns me forever to the walls of a prison. None can fly from a dungeon who cannot walk. Well, we will wait a week, a month, two months, if need be, and meanwhile your strength will return. Everything is in readiness for our flight, and we can select any time we choose. As soon as you feel able to swim, we will go. I shall never swim again, replied Faria. This arm is paralyzed, not for a time, but forever. Lift it and judge if I am mistaken. The young man raised the arm, which fell back by its own weight, perfectly inanimate and helpless. A sigh escaped him. You are convinced now, Edmond, are you not? asked the abbe. Depend upon it. I know what I say. Since the first attack I experienced of this malady, I have continually reflected on it. Indeed, I expected it, for it is a family inheritance. Both my father and grandfather died of it in a third attack. The physician, who prepared me for the remedy I have twice successfully taken, was no other than the celebrated Cabani, and he predicted a similar end for me. The physician may be mistaken, exclaimed Dante, and as for your poor arm, what difference will that make? I can take you on my shoulders and swim for both of us. My son, said the abbe, you, who are a sailor and a swimmer, must know as well as I do that a man so loaded would sink before he had done fifty strokes. Cease then to allow yourself to be duped by feign hopes that even your own excellent heart refuses to believe in. Here I shall remain till the hour of my deliverance arrives, and that, in all human probability, will be the hour of my death. As for you, who are young and active, delay not on my account, but fly, go. I give you back your promise. It is well, said Dante. 
then I shall also remain. Then rising and extending his hand with an air of solemnity over the old man's head, he slowly added, By the blood of Christ, I swear never to leave you while you live. Faria gazed fondly on his noble-minded, single-hearted, high-principled young friend, and read in his countenance ample confirmation of the sincerity of his devotion and the loyalty of his purpose. Thanks murmured the invalid, extending one hand. I accept. You may one of these days reap the reward of your disinterested devotion, but as I cannot, and you will not quit this place, it becomes necessary to fill up the excavation beneath the soldier's gallery. He might, by chance, hear the hollow sound of his footsteps, and call the attention of his officer to the circumstance. That would bring about a discovery which would inevitably lead to our being separated. Go then, and set about this work in which, unhappily, I can offer you no assistance. Keep at it all night, if necessary, and do not return here tomorrow till after the jailer is visited me. I shall have something of the greatest importance to communicate to you. Dante took the hand of the abbe in his and affectionately pressed it. Faria smiled encouragingly on him, and the young man retired to his task in the spirit of obedience and respect which he had sworn to show towards his aged friend. End of chapter 17。Chapter 18 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Treasure. When Dante returned next morning to the chamber of his companion in captivity, he found Faria seated and looking composed. In the ray of light which entered by the narrow window of his cell, he held open in his left hand, of which alone it will be recollected he retained the use, a sheet of paper, which, from being constantly rolled into a small compass, had the form of a cylinder, and was not easily kept open. He did not speak, but showed the paper to Dante. "'What is that?' he inquired. "'Look at it,' said the abbé with a smile. "'I have looked at it with all possible attention,' said Dante, "'and I only see half-burnt paper, on which are traces of Gothic characters.' inscribed with a peculiar can of ink. "'This paper, my friend,' said Faria, "'I may now avow to you, since I have the proof of your fidelity. This paper is my treasure, of which from this day forth one half belongs to you.' The sweat started forth on Dante's brow. Until this day, and for how long a time, he had refrained from talking of the treasure which he had brought upon the abbe the accusation of madness. With his instinctive de delicacy, Edmond had preferred avoiding any touch on this painful cord, and Faria had been equally silent. He had taken the silence of the old man for a return to reason, and now these few words uttered by Faria, after so painful a crisis, seemed to indicate a serious relapse into mental alienation. Your treasure stammered Dante. Faria smiled. Yes, said he, 
You have indeed a noble nature, Edmond, and I see by your paleness and agitation what is passing in your heart at this moment. No, be assured, I am not mad. This treasure exists, Dante, and if I have not been allowed to possess it, you will. Yes, you. No one would listen or believe me, because everyone thought me mad. But you, who must know that I am not, listen to me, and believe me so afterwards, if you will. Alas, murmured Edmond to himself, this is a terrible relapse. There was only this blow wanting. Then he said aloud, My dear friend, your attack has perhaps fatigued you. Had you not better repose a while? Tomorrow, if you will, I will hear your narrative, but today I wish to nurse you carefully. Besides, he said, a treasure is not a thing we need hurry about. On the contrary, it is a matter of the utmost importance, Edmund, replied the old man. Who knows if tomorrow, or the next day after, the third attack may not come on, and then must not all be over. Yes, indeed, I have often thought with a bitter joy that these riches which would make the wealth of a dozen families will be forever lost to those men who persecute me. This idea was one of vengeance to me, and I tasted it slowly in the night of my dungeon and the despair of my captivity. But now I have forgiven the world for the love of you. Now that I see you, young and with a promising future, now that I think of all that may result to you in the good fortune of such a disclosure, I shudder at any delay, and tremble, lest I should not assure to one as worthy as yourself the possession of so vast an amount of hidden wealth. Edmond turned away his head with a sigh. You persist in your incredulity, Edmond, continued Faria. My words have not convinced you. I see you require proofs. Well, then, read this paper, which I have never shown to anyone. Tomorrow, my dear friend, said Edmond, desirous of not yielding to the old man's madness. I thought it was understood that we should not talk of that until tomorrow. Then we will not talk of it until tomorrow, but read this paper today. I will not irritate him, thought Edmond, and taking the paper of which half was wanting, having been burnt, no doubt by some accident, he read, This treasure which may amount to two of Roman crowns in the most distant ah, uh, of the second opening declared to belong to him allo heir. 25th April, 1490. Well, said Faria, when the young man had finished reading it. Why, replied Dante, I see nothing but broken lines and unconnected words, which are rendered illegi illegible by fire. Yes, to you, my friend, who read them for the first time, but not for me, who have grown pale over them by many nights' study, and have reconstructed every phrase, completed every thought. And do you believe you have discovered the hidden meaning? I am sure I have, and you shall judge for yourself. But first listen to the history of this paper. Silence! exclaimed Dante. Steps approach. I go. Adieu. And Dante, happy to escape the history and explanation which would be sure to confirm his belief in his friend's mental instability, glided like a snake along the narrow passage 
while Faria, restored by his alarm to a certain amount of activity, pushed the stone into place with his foot and covered it with a mat in order the more effectually to avoid discovery. It was the governor who, hearing of Faria's illness from the jailer, had come in person to see him. Faria sat up to receive him, avoiding all gestures in order that he might conceal from the governor the paralysis that had already half-stricken him with his death. His fear was lest the governor, touched with pity, might order him to be removed to better quarters and thus separate him from his young companion. But fortunately this was not the case, and the governor left him convinced that the poor madman, for whom in his heart he felt a kind of affection, was only troubled with a slight indisposition. During this time Edmond, seated on his bed with his head in his hands, tried to collect his scattered thoughts. Faria, since their first acquaintance, had been on all points so rational and logical, so wonderfully sagacious, in fact, that he couldn't understand how so much wisdom on all points could be allied with madness. Was Faria deceived as to his treasure, or was all the world deceived as to Faria? Dante remained in his cell all day, not daring to return to his friend, thinking thus to defer the moment when he should be convinced, once for all, that the abbe was mad. Such conviction would be so terrible. But towards the evening, after the hour for the customary visit had gone by, Faria, not seeing the young man appear, tried to move and get over the distance which separated them. Edmond shuddered when he heard the painful efforts which the old man made to drag himself along. His leg was inert, and he could no longer make use of one arm. Edmond was obliged to assist him, for otherwise he would not have been able to enter by the small aperture which led to Dante's chamber. "'Here I am, pursuing you remorselessly,' he said with a benignant smile. "'You thought to escape my munificence, but it is in vain. Listen to me.' Edmond saw there was no escape, and placing the old man on his bed, he seated himself on the stool beside him. "'You know,' said the abbé, "'that I was the secretary and intimate friend of Cardinal Spada, "'the last of the princes of that name. "'I owe to this worthy lord all the happiness I have ever knew. "'He was not rich, although the wealth of his family had passed into a proverb, "'and I heard the phrase very often, as rich as a Spada. "'But he, like public rumour, lived on his reputation for wealth. "'His palace was my paradise.' I was tutor to his nephews, who are dead, and when he was alone in the world, I tried by absolute devotion to his will to make up to him all he had done for me during ten years of unremitting kindness. The cardinal's house had no secrets from me. I had often seen my noble patron annotating ancient volumes and eagerly searching amongst dusty family manuscripts. One day... When I was reproaching him for his unavailing searches and deploring the prostration of mind that followed them, he looked at me and, smiling bitterly, opened a volume relating to the history of the city of Rome. There, in the twentieth chapter of the life of Pope Alexander VI, were the following lines which I can never forget. The great wars of Romagna had ended. Caesar Borgia, who had completed his conquest, had need of money to purchase all Italy. The Pope had also need of money to bring matters to an end with Louis XII, King of France, 
who was formidable still in spite of his recent reverses, and it was necessary, therefore, to have recourse to some profitable scheme, which was a matter of great difficulty in the impoverished conditions of exhausted Italy. His Holiness had an idea. He determined to make two cardinals. By choosing two of the greatest personages of Rome, especially rich men, this was the return the Holy Father looked for. In the first place, he could sell the great appointments and splendid offices which the cardinals already held, and then he had the two hats to sell besides. There was a third point in view, which will appear hereafter. The Pope and Cesar Borgia first found the two future cardinals. They were Giovanni Rospagliosi, who held four of the highest dignities of the Holy See, and Cesar Spada, one of the noblest and richest of the Roman nobility. Both felt the high honour of such a favour from the Pope. They were ambitious, and Cesar Borgia soon found purchases for their appointments. The result was that Rospigliosi and Spada paid for being cardinals, and eight other persons paid for the offices the cardinals held before their elevation. And thus, 800,000 crowns entered into the coffers of the speculators. It is time now to proceed to the last part of the speculation. The Pope heaped attentions upon Rospigliosi and Spada, conferred upon them the insignia of the Cardinalate, and induced them to arrange their affairs and take up their residence at Rome. Then the Pope and Cesar Borgia invited the two cardinals to dinner. This was a matter of dispute between the Holy Father and his son. Cesar thought they could make use of one of the means which he always had ready for his friends. That is to say, in the first place, the famous key which was given to certain persons with the request that they go and open a designated cupboard. This key was furnished with a small iron point, a negligence on the part of the locksmith. When this was pressed to effect the opening of the cupboard, of which the lock was difficult, the person was pricked by this small point and died next day. Then there was the ring with the lion's head, which Cesar wore when he wanted to greet his friends with a clasp of the hand. The lion bit the hand thus favoured, and at the end of twenty-four hours the bite was mortal. Cesar proposed to his father that they should either ask the cardinals to open the cupboard or shake hands with them. But Alexander VI replied, Now, as to the worthy cardinals, Spada and Rospigliosi, let us ask both of them to dinner. Something tells me that we should get that money back. Besides, you forget, Cesar, an indigestion declares itself immediately, while a prick or a bite occasions a delay of a day or two. Cesar gave way before such cogent reasoning, and the cardinals were consequently invited to dinner. The table was laid in a vineyard belonging to the Pope, near San Pierdarina a charming retreat which the cardinals knew very well by report. Rospigliosi, quite set up with his new dignities, went with a good appetite, and his most ingratiating manner. Spada, a prudent man and greatly attached to his only nephew, a young captain of the highest promise, 
took paper and pen, and made his will. He then sent word to his nephew to wait for him near the vineyard, but it appeared the servant did not find him. Spada knew what these invitations meant, since Christianity so eminently civilizing had made progress in Rome. It was no longer a centurion who came from the tyrant with a message. Caesar wills that you die. But it was a legate, a talatari, who came with a smile on his lips to say from the Pope, His Holiness requests you to dine with him. Spara set about two o'clock to San Piedrina. The Pope awaited him. The first sight that attracted the eyes of Spara was that of his nephew in full costume and Cesar Borgia paying him most marked attentions. Spada turned pale, as Cesar looked at him with an ironical air which proved that he had anticipated all, and that the snare was well spread. They began that dinner, and Spada was only able to inquire of his nephew if he had received his message. The nephew replied no, perfectly comprehending the meaning of the question. It was too late, for he had already drunk a glass of excellent wine, placed for him expressly by the Pope's butler. Spada, at the same moment, saw another bottle approach him, which he was pressed to taste. An hour afterwards, a physician declared they were both poisoned through eating mushrooms. Spada died on the threshold of the vineyard. The nephew expired at his own door, making signs which his wife could not comprehend. Then Cesar and the Pope hastened to lay hands on the heritage, under presence of seeking for papers of the dead man. But the inheritance consisted in this only, a scrap of paper on which Spada had written, I bequeath to my beloved nephew, my coffers, my books, and amongst others my breviary, with the gold corners, which I beg he would preserve in remembrance of his affectionate uncle. The heirs are sought everywhere, admired the breviary, laid hands on the furniture, and were greatly astonished that Spada, the rich man, was really the most miserable of uncles. No treasures, unless they were those of science, contained in the library and laboratories. That was all. Cesar and his father searched, examined, scrutinized, but found nothing, or at least a very little, not exceeding a few thousand crowns in plate, and about the same in ready money. But the nephew had time to say to his wife before he expired, Look well among my uncle's papers. There is a will. They sought even more thoroughly than the August heirs had done. But it was fruitless. There were two palaces and a vineyard behind the Palatine Hill. But in these days landed property had not much value and the two palaces and the vineyard remained to the family, since they were beneath the rapacity of the Pope and his son. Months and years rolled on. Alexander VI died, poisoned, you know by what mistake. Cesar, poisoned at the same time, escaped by shedding his skin like a snake, but the new skin was spotted by the poison, till it looked like a tiger's. Then, compelled to quit Rome, he went and got himself obscurely killed in a night skirmish, scarcely noticed in history. After the Pope's death and his son's exile, 
It was supposed that that Spada family would resume the splendid position they had held before the Cardinal's time. But this was not the case. The Spadas remained in doubtful ease. A mystery hung over this dark affair, and the public rumour was that César, a better politician than his father, had carried off from the Pope the fortune of the two cardinals. I say the two because Cardinal Rospigliosi, who had not taken any precaution, was completely despoiled. Up to this point, said Faria, interrupting the thread of his narrative, this seems to you very meaningless, no doubt, eh? Oh, my friend, cried Dante, on the contrary, it seems as if I were reading a most interesting narrative. Go on, I beg of you. I will. The family began to get accustomed to their obscurity. Years rolled on, and amongst the descendants, some were soldiers, others diplomatists, some churchmen, some bankers, some grew rich and some were ruined. I come now to the last of the family, whose secretary I was, the Count of Spada. I had often heard him complain of the disproportion of his rank with his fortune, and I advised him to invest all he had in an annuity. He did so, and thus doubled his income. The celebrated breviary remained in the family, and was in the Count's possession. It had been handed down from father to son, for the singular clause of the only will that had been found, and caused it to be regarded as a genuine relic, preserved in the family with superstitious veneration. It was an illuminated book with beautiful Gothic characters, and so weighty with gold that a servant always carried it before the cardinal on days of great solemnity. At the sight of papers of all sorts, titles, contracts, parchments, which were kept in the archives of the family, all descending from the poisoned cardinal, I in my turn examined the immense bundles of documents, like twenty servitors, stewards, secretaries before me. But in spite of the most exhaustive researches, I found nothing. Yet I had read, I had even written a precise history of the Borgia family, for the sole purpose of assuring myself whether any increase of fortune had occurred to them on the death of the Cardinal César Spada, but could only trace the acquisition of the property of the Cardinal Rospigliosi, his companion in misfortune. I was then almost assured that the inheritance had neither profited the Borgias nor the family, but had remained unpossessed like the treasures of the Arabian Nights, which slept in the bosom of the earth, under the eyes of the genie. I searched, ransacked, counted, calculated a thousand and a thousand times the income and expenditure of the family for three hundred years. It was useless. I remained in my ignorance, and the Count of Spada in his poverty. My patron died. He had reserved from his annuity his family papers, his library, composed of five thousand volumes, and his famous bravery. All these he bequeathed to me, with a thousand Roman crowns, which he had in ready money, on condition that I would have anniversary masses said for the repose of his soul, and that I would draw up a genealogical tree and history of his house. All this I did scrupulously. 
Be easy, my dear Edmond. We are near the conclusion. In 1807, a month before I was arrested, and a fortnight after the death of the Count of Spada, on the 25th of December, you will see presently how the date became fixed in my memory. I was reading for the thousandth time the papers I was arranging for the palace was sold to a stranger, and I was going to leave Rome and settle at Florence, intending to take with me twelve thousand francs I possessed, my library and the famous breviary, when, tired with my inconstant labour at the very same thing, and overcome by a heavy dinner I had eaten, my head dropped on my hands, and I fell asleep about three o'clock in the afternoon. I awoke as the clock was striking six. I raised my head. I was in utter darkness. I rang for a light, but as no one came, I determined to find one for myself. It was indeed but anticipating the simple manners which I should soon be under the necessity of adopting. I took a wax candle in one hand and with the other groped about for a piece of paper, my matchbox being empty, with which I proposed to get a light from the small flame still playing on the embers. Fearing, however, to make use of any valuable piece of paper, I hesitated for a moment then recollected that I had seen in the famous breviary, which was on the table beside me, an old paper quite yellow with age, and which had served as a marker for centuries, kept there by the request of the heirs. I felt for it, found it, twisted it together and put it into the expiring flame, set a light to it. But beneath my fingers, as if by magic, in proportion as the fire ascended, I saw yellowish characters appear on the paper. I grasped it in my hand, put out the flames as quickly as I could, lighted my taper in the fire itself, and opened the crumpled paper with inexpressible emotion, recognizing when I had done so that these characters had been traced in mysterious and sympathetic ink, only appearing when exposed to the fire. Nearly one-third of the paper had been consumed by the flame. It was that paper you read this morning. Read it again, Dante, and then I will complete for you the incomplete words and unconnected sense. Faria, with an air of triumph, offered the paper to Dante, who this time read the following words, traced with an ink of a red-dish colour resembling rust. This 25th day of April, 1498, B, Alexander VI, and fearing that not, he may desire to become my heir, and re, and Bentivoglio, who were poisoned, my sole heir that I have but, and has visited with me, that is in, island of Monte Cristo, all I pos, jewels, diamonds, gems, that I alone, may amount to nearly the two million, will find on raising the twentieth row creek to the east in a right line, too open. In these caves, the treasure is in the furthest a which treasure I bequeath and leave en as my sole heir. 25th April 1498 says, And now, said the abbe, read this other paper, 
and he presented to Dante a second leaf with fragments of lines written on it which Edmond read as follows. Ing invited to dine by his holiness, content with making me pay for my hat, serves for me the fate of Cardinals Caprara, I declare to my nephew Guido Spada, read in a place he knows, the caves of the small, est of Imgot's gold money, know of the existence of this treasure which lions of Roman crowns and which he from the small ings have been made, Ingle in the second, tire to him, are Spada. Faria followed him with an excited look. And now, he said, when he saw that Dante had read the last line, put the two fragments together and judge for yourself. Dante obeyed, and the conjointed pieces gave the following. This 25th day of April, 1498, being invited to dine by His Holiness Alexander VI, and fearing that, not content with making me pay for my hat, he may desire to become my heir, and reserves for me the fate of Cardinals Caprara and Bentivoglio, who were poisoned, I declare to my nephew, Guido Spada, my sole heir, that I have buried in a place he knows and has visited with me, that is, in the caves of the small island of Monte Cristo, all I possessed of ingots, gold, money, jewels, diamonds, gems, that I alone know of the existence of this treasure which may amount to nearly two millions of Roman crowns, and which he will find on raising the twentieth rock from the small creek to the east in a right line. Two openings have been made in these caves. The treasure is in the furthest, angle in the second. Which treasure I bequeath, and leave entire to him as my sole heir. 25th April, 1498. Cesar Spada. Well, do you comprehend now? inquired Faria. It is the declaration of Cardinal Spada, and the will so long sought for, replied Edmond, still incredulous. Yes, a thousand times yes. And who completed it as it is now? I did, aided by the remaining fragment. I guessed the rest measuring the length of the lines by those of the paper and divining the hidden meaning by means of what was in part revealed as we are guided in a cavern by the small ray of light above us. And what did you do when you arrived at this conclusion? I resolved to set out and did set out at that very instant, carrying with me the beginning of my great work, the unity of the Italian kingdom. But for some time the imperial police who at this period, quite contrary to what Napoleon desired so soon as he had son born to him, wished for a partition of provinces, had their eyes on me, and my hasty departure, the cause of which they were unable to guess, having aroused their suspicions. I was arrested at the very moment I was leaving Piombino. Now, continued Faria, addressing Dante with an almost paternal expression, now, my dear fellow, you know as much as I do myself. If we ever escape together, half of this treasure is yours. If I die here, and you escape alone, the whole belongs to you. But, inquired Dante, hesitating, 
as this treasure no more legitimate possessor in the world than ourselves? No, no, be easy on that score. The family is extinct. The last count of Sparda, moreover, made me his heir, bequeathing to me this symbolic breviary. He bequeathed to me all it contained. No, no, make your mind satisfied on that point. If we lay hands on this fortune, we may enjoy it without remorse. And you say this treasure amounts to two millions of Roman crowns, nearly thirteen millions of our money. Impossible, said Dante, staggered at the enormous amount. Impossible? And why? asked the old man. The Spada family was one of the oldest and most powerful families of the fifteenth century, and in those times when other opportunities for investment were wanting, such accumulations of gold and jewels were by no means rare. There are at this day Roman families perishing of hunger, though possessed of nearly a million in diamonds and jewels, handed down by entail, and which they cannot touch. Edmond thought he was in a dream. He wavered between incredulity and joy. I have only kept this secret so long from you, continued Faria, that I might test your character and then surprise you. Had we escaped before my attack of catalepsy, I should have conducted you to Monte Cristo now, he added with a sigh. It is you who will conduct me thither. Well, Dante, you do not thank me? This treasure belongs to you, my dear friend, replied Dante, and to you only. I have no right to it. I am no relation of yours. You are my son, Dante, exclaimed the old man. You are the child of my captivity. My profession condemns me to celibacy. God has sent you to me to console, at one and the same time, the man who could not be a father, and the prisoner who could not get free. And Faria extended the arm of which alone the use remained to him, to the young man, who threw himself upon his neck and wept. End of chapter 18「グリーディーコーポレットメガストーズ」「レッドバイ・ウォーマー・アンターゲット」「アプシングフォー・ロー・コングレス」「トゥ・テイク・アウェイ・ヨー・ハード・アン・カッシュ・バック・アン・トラベル・ポイント」「トゥ・ライン・デー・ポケット」「ドゥ・ダーバン・マーシャル・クレディ・カード・ビル」「ウィン・アクト・ハーム・フォー・クレディ・カード・ラウディ・マンデイツ」「ウィン・エン・クレディ・カード・ロワーズ」「アズ・ウィン・ノイト」「イフ・ユー・ロブ・ヨー・クレディ・カード・ロワーズ」「テル・ヨー・ロー・メイカーズ」「ハンズ・オフ・マイ・ロワーズ」「テル・ヴィン・トゥ・アポーズ・ドゥ・ダーバン・マーシャル・クレディ・カード・ビル」